1: everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow.
2: And I'm Derek Lavasser.
1: So today we're jumping into part two of the Michelle Lawless case, but I know you have something you want to say really quickly. You said 10 seconds. So 10 I'm going to seconds. Time you. If you guys
2: have yeah. probably already seen on Crime Weekly News, the back to school code. Thank you, everyone who used it. We sold a ton of coffee, a lot of K-cups, all because of you guys. It ends September 4th. So if you want it, get in on it. <sighs> There you go. 10 seconds on the money,
1: right? Impressed? That was perfect.
2: Yep. (laughs) That's it.
1: I am impressed.
2: That's it.
1: (laughs) Wow. I was like-
2: Are you keeping track?
1: Yeah, you did. You're not seeing me counting on my fingers? No,
2: I was looking at the camera.
1: Dude, it was 10 seconds. Exactly. And I was like, he's about to go over. He's about to go over. And then I'm going to get that smug look on my face, but- (laughs) You got nothing. Brava. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. There you go. So you guys know.
1: <laughs> all right. So this is a great case. I know Derek was really um, into it last episode. So we're going to continue. Um, is there, I guess, I don't, should I just dive right in? It feels weird. I'm like still reeling over the 10 second, like perfect timing.
2: I mean, to, to think of all the things that's going on in this relationship. That's what's impressive. That's you. what that's, is impressive to me. That's yeah. crazy. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're going to get to it. So I will just double back real quick because obviously we end these episodes and then I start thinking about them and I'm like playing out different scenarios. Yes. And if, you re- if you recall in my last episode, I- in our last episode, mm-hmm. I was like, I still don't get like how I, I left the episode being like really perplexed by the question of how did the offender or offenders Get her on the side of the road? Did he? Did they know her? And I think I even gave some scenarios. I can't remember exactly, but I was like, did they like pull up on her or like, you know, signal for her to get off the road? Did they like purposely push her off the road with another vehicle? But then I was thinking about it too, and, and maybe I forgot about it when we were talking about it, but I think you mentioned that she had been drinking that night, right?
1: So her boyfriend or the guy that she was seeing. Leon Lamb, he said when she showed up at his house, she was drunk, um, yes. but then remember the toxicology showed that she really wasn't that drunk.
2: Well, I mean, here's what I'll say. With the toxicology, you can't, di- you can't dispute it, but I will say some people act differently and react to different amounts of alcohol based on their own body weight and their own chemical makeup so the reason i think she was
1: under 90 pounds by the way well
2: there you go yeah there you go so it wouldn't take a lot for her to be affected by it and the reason i bring that up is because i was playing another scenario in my head i'm like okay derek you've been focusing too much on the idea that the offender tricked her to get to the side of the road or that she knew the offender and somehow convinced her to stop on the side of the road to meet up with them then there was another scenario i'm like okay it, and you got to and by the way this is like as an investigator how you would do it where you're just thinking about commonsensical explanations as to why or how your victim would end up on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere right on their way home there's no reason for them to stop well let me throw two scenarios at you maybe you can relate to one of them i know i can first one she's intoxicated she feels like she's going to throw up so she pulls over to the side of the road to vomit in the grass like and then her offender whoever it is sees her by herself and decides to pull over to not only check on her, but to see if she's alone, right? That's scenario one. Another scenario, I also think, you know, some people might be uh, offended by this or whatever, but maybe she had to go to the bathroom, right? Maybe she had to pee really, really bad and just wasn't going to make it and pulled over to the side of the road and walked a little bit into the grass to kind of relieve herself. And then she was going to come back. And during that time, her offender or offenders pulled over behind her Again, to maybe check on her or that maybe they saw her and when they realized she was alone, that's when things escalated in the area, the grass where she was, right? Like that's where the attack happens. She may have voluntarily walked out there to, again, take care of some personal business. And unfortunately, there was someone driving by who saw her, got out of their vehicle and proceeded to attack her from that point. What do you think about those two theories?
1: So you think that it's possible that this person just didn't know her at all and it was just a crime of opportunity? Is that kind of the direction you're going?
2: I could see a world where the person—I won't even say didn't know her, but the person saw the vehicle and maybe saw a young woman by herself on a dark road and said, ooh— this is, a, this is a good opportunity right here. It's no different than someone who sees a, a little child riding their bike outside of a store. They right. don't necessarily know that's going to occur. They have these temptations, and then when an opportunity presents itself, they act on it. So a, a lot of these cases, it's a matter of seconds between you being safe and you being the victim of a crime. And in this unfortunate circumstance, when she pulled over and where she pulled over, someone who clearly wasn't right in the head Happened to be driving by as well because I just think that's I was trying to understand like How did they get her to the side of the road? We know she left alone So if she keeps driving down that road without stopping this more than likely doesn't happen So either she was tricked into pulling to the side of the road or it was more It was uh, uh, the offender was driving along the side of her and maybe saw her alone and said, ooh Here's a young girl. I'm gonna push her off the road and attack her But you would think that you would see some damage to her vehicle if that were the case. so Or like skid marks or something. Something. And and we didn't have that, which is why I said in the end of the episode, like my mind's in a pretzel right now, because I'm like, I still don't get, I can see how this would all occur, but how does she end up just pulled over on the side of the road and then back in her vehicle? I'm still not completely sure about the vehicle. I guess you could make the argument that as she's getting attacked, she's able to run back to her vehicle. And that's when everything else, when she, she gets shot in her vehicle, as she's trying to escape, that could that could explain it right there, but the big thing, the big holdup for me where I was sitting here after we got done just rendering the episode, and I'm like, how the f*** did they get her to the side of the road? Light bulb, maybe she got herself to the side of the road, not knowing that it was opening her up to some potential situations that where someone would be able to get the drop on her. I don't, I don't know what you thought about it, and I wasn't going to bring it up to you that night. I'm like, I'll save it for the episode.
1: I mean, it's not really fair because I know more
2: shit about this
1: case. Right. So but I can see where you're coming from. And you also have to think small town Saturday night. what What the hell else is there to do in this place besides go to parties, drink. You got a couple guys or a group of guys driving around. They've had too much to drink. They take advantage of it. However, I will say, like, just as a little spoiler, there were eyewitnesses that remembered seeing two cars kind of parked there and then also an eyewitness that saw two cars
2: one being her one one hers one being another car
1: allegedly right like they don't know for sure but okay and another witness who saw a car parked there before she could have been there and then another eyewitness that saw a car on the overpass right by that exit, which does suggest to me and others that that maybe somebody was lying in wait for her. So, and we're gonna get to all of that. And, okay, and, yeah, but hold. they could just be random cars, right? It could have nothing to do with anything or maybe they they didn't really see two cars and they just thought they did. We all That'd know be the first I, time that's happened. Yeah, eyewitness testimony is just like the most unreliable because your mind fills in the blanks for you and you can mistake things that you've seen before and think you saw it that night. So it doesn't prove anything. But, yeah, it is a big mystery to a lot of people how at that time of night when she was just a mile away from home, why she would stop. Yeah. Especially if it was for somebody that she didn't know. She and wouldn't have stopped for somebody she didn't know, most likely.
2: I agree. And even with you, what you just gave me, those little nuggets of information, mm-hmm. nothing there rules out the idea that she pulls over, she's relieving herself or she's throwing up or whatever, and someone driving by. But they the didn't over- see
1: any th- any puke, you know. Well, think I mean, they...
2: it's again, it could be, it could be, she could have been relieving herself or she, before that even occurred, maybe she's dry heaving. Again, I'm not going to go too far in the weeds. This is all speculation. But for some reason she pulled over and the offenders driving on the overpass or driving down the interstate and sees this young little girl getting out of her car, attractive young girl getting out of her car and nobody's around. And they pull over at first to say, Hey, are you okay? Who are you with? Where where are you you heading? And then when she gives answers that line up with some of their intentions, that's when they have the drop on her now. And there's nobody out there other than those two individuals. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Maybe my mind will change as the episode progresses. But I just feel like. There's not a really good explanation as to how someone would get her to stop in the middle of the highway. I could see if they were, like, telling her to go somewhere to another place. It wasn't
1: in the middle of the highway. It was on the side of the road, the road. that you would, like, exit off of. You know, yeah. you're exiting, like, oh, this is my exit. So you t- you get off the highway to go on to the exit.
2: So why would you pull over on the side of the road off an o- uh, an on-ramp or an I off-ramp, agree. I should say?
1: And I feel that um, uh, if, if you ask me what I'm feeling, she was targeted, and somebody knew she would be there.
2: Okay, great. All right. So based on what you know, I'm not going to say anything else. That's what I was like. If it's not the boyfriend who saw her leaving, right, the guy she was dating at the time, who would have known that she was going to be at that location at that time? And maybe you're going to enlighten me tonight where there was some exchanging of phone calls or text messages that would have gave someone the drop on, hey, she's going to be driving down this road around this time. Mm-hmm. So, okay, mm-hmm. cool. You're doing the mm So we'll see.
1: I I mean, it's it's a hard case. So
2: way down in the comments. Let me know if you guys think without knowing you guys are kind of with me on this for the people who don't know it. Is that a concern for you? Are you thinking about that? Is that a question that you're asking yourself? Because everything else we can kind of put together, like how she was killed. We have a lot of forensic evidence there. We know the manner cause of death. But the, the whole thing is stems on. How did they get her to the side of the road or, the, or this off ramp? How did it's not a normal thing for you to just pull over in the middle of the night or late at night to just pull over to the side of the road to hang out? There was nobody else there as far as we know. So unless she was meeting someone at that location, what are the other reasons why you would pull over to the side of the road? And just, you know, for me, it was meeting like okay. someone
1: at that location or maybe she was sort of flagged down, you know, like because that that would be the exit she would take. To get home, she would have gotten off the the exit ramp and then, you know, been drove a mile and been home. So maybe somebody's driving up on her. They're waiting maybe from a distance to see her pull up and then they speed up and they kind of like maybe pull up next to her and they wave to her and like flag her down and you're, she knows you're, them.
2: You're saying this person wouldn't would have known her though.
1: They would have known her, yes.
2: Because my question to you would be if it's if mm-hmm. it's not someone you know and a random guy. I'm just going to assume for the situation it was a man who was involved in this. I don't think that's a far stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it, I don't think she would have pulled over some ran- for some random dude she didn't rec- I think no. she'd be more alarmed and keep driving.
1: No. Um so and and it could be more of like um they knew of her and she knew of them, but they didn't necessarily run in the same circles, you know? It could have been could have been that. Uh we'll just have to get into Let's it. Let's
2: just get into it. And I and yeah. I I will revisit this hypothesis at the end of this episode to see if I still feel that way. But before we get there, way down in the comments, if you're watching on YouTube, let me know. Do you think there's validity to it? If not, let me know why. And then give me your opinion at the end of the episode as well, if you still feel that way after hearing everything tonight.
1: So on Sunday, November 8th, 1992, Mark Abbott went into the Scott County Sheriff's Office to give his statement on allegedly finding 19-year-old nursing student Michelle Lawless dead in her car on the side of Interstate 70 behind the stop sign of the Benton, Missouri exit. Now, by this time, he'd already spoken to jailer Wes Drury the night before, even though Wes wrote down in his notes that he had talked to Mark's identical twin brother, Matt Abbott. Mark had also briefly spoken with Benton police officer Roy Moore at the scene of the crime after he went to the sheriff's office when he drove up and claimed to have been the one to have found Michelle, even though at the time he was driving a car. And Mark Abbott was known to drive a Chevy S10 truck. And he was also interviewed at his trailer on Sunday afternoon by Deputy Chief Beardsley and Wes Drury, at which point he informed them that he thought Michelle was a drunk person passed out on the side of the road, which caused him to reach in through the open driver's side window of her car and lift her lifeless body in an attempt to wake her. Now, Mark Abbott would change or modify his story no less than five times over the next several months. Honestly, it's more like 12 or 13 times with all the small adjustments and things. But to to try to keep things simple, let's say five. And we're going to discuss some of those changes today, as well as talk about some early suspects in the case. So when Mark Abbott went into the sheriff's office on Sunday afternoon, he was interviewed by Deputy Brenda Schwitz. And even though Tom Beardsley was technically second in command to the Scott County Sheriff, Bill Farrell, and even though Beardsley had been involved in a few murder investigations and Brenda Schwitz had not— it seemed that on this specific investigation Sheriff Bill Farrell had decided that Schwitz and not Beardsley was going to take point on Michelle's murder case which is why she was the one to interview Mark that day although Beardsley had made it clear to her when he called her after interviewing Mark at the trailer that he was suspicious of Mark Abbott his demeanor um the way he was you know giving his story the details of the story that didn't add up with what Beardsley himself had personally observed at the crime scene and as a refresher beardsley didn't think that the window of michelle's vehicle was rolled down far enough for mark abbott to fit his whole upper body in enough to lift her in the way he described mark abbott had said he didn't even know michelle was a woman until he saw the rings on her finger and michelle's rings were not on her finger that night they were in the um the middle compartment of her car she had taken them off at some point and that's where they were when um when the Missouri State Highway Patrol uh, processed the scene, so there was a couple of things that Mark had done and said that made Beardsley feel like you know he needed to talk to Mark again, and he wanted to go to the crime scene really quick to just sort of. Uh, fact check a couple of things that Mark had said, specifically the fact that Mark had seen some like weird hitchhiker by Michelle's car and the hitchhiker had thought he was going to hit him. And Beardsley wanted to see was there any evidence that another person had been at the scene of the crime at that time?
2: Yeah, I mean, I could understand why you'd want to do that. And I, as I said pre- in the previous episode, you could be looking at two scenarios here. You could be looking at a witness who's identifying your suspect, or you could be talking to someone who is your suspect and knows. That in order to kind of divert blame off of them, they they have to someone else has to be at the crime scene, and because they know what actually went down, they can create a pretty good, you know, quote unquote, additional person there that they can say, "Hey, I saw this random person hop over that guardrail," and they're presenting it as if they're ignorant and don't know if it's significant at all. When in fact, they know exactly what they're saying and how it would tie up a lot of loose ends for detectives if they're looking for an alternate suspect.
1: And Tom's, Tom Beardsley did say when Mark was talking about that hitchhiker, uh, he felt he had made it up on the spot. And, you know, just f- to kind of spoiler alert here, but Mark Abbott never brought up this person again, never yeah. talked about this person again. It, it was ghosted out of his story. And remember that he told Tom Beardsley and West Drury that afternoon in his trailer, like that was the only person he'd seen. He hadn't seen anybody else that night. But once again, this would change.
2: Yeah. I-, I will say, too. I don't know if Mark Abbott or Matt Abbott are involved in this, and I prob- I'm i not going to say either way at the end of this because clearly they're innocent as we speak right now. Mm. But I will say if he is the guy who did it, it would have been better off just saying what he saw and saying he responded to police. It makes his story look less credible by adding this random hitchhiker in there. Now, could it be true? Yeah, I guess in some world it could be. But the likelihood of that being the case, that when he rolled up this hitchhiker who would been, have been the only other person in the area... Um, somehow fled the area and he didn't talk to him or get a good description of him. It just looks really bad. So as I've said in other cases, either he's lying or he just has the worst luck ever where it just so happens that he says enough to make him look suspicious, but doesn't have enough specific information or detail about this third person that could help exonerate him or help clear him. So it just, it might be just uh, shit luck or it's, as you have kind of alluded to, just Something's not adding up. You know, there's something that he's being dishonest about.
1: I mean, honestly, I would argue that Mark Abbott seems to have impeccable luck. Right. Because, look, he's the the uh, person who finds her body. He touches her body. So his fingerprints and DNA could potentially be on her or on her car. He goes to the sheriff's office and then he goes to the scene of the crime for some reason. And then he proceeds to give multiple changing stories over the next several months, like changing stories that literally do not resemble any of his other stories at all. And still, he manages to escape any sort of suspicion. So he seems to have incredible luck.
2: I get what you're saying. Don't you think that's that's like
1: suspect number one at that point?
2: Oh, he is your main suspect for sure. I don't care. I don't care that he pre- came in voluntarily and presented himself as a witness. There's no mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. as an investigator, he's not at minimum your number one person of interest. I, I and I, well, I know. he wasn't. I don't want. I don't want to. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I don't want to skip around either. But it's just too bad in this situation. And maybe you're going to tell me this did happen, but that Michelle. Couldn't have put up more of a fight in a way where she might have gotten some of her offenders DNA under her fingernails, because here's a situation where, okay, Mark, you can explain your DNA being on her jacket or on one specific shoulder, but if we start start finding her DNA, your DNA under her fingernails, you got problems. You got major problems. And I'm I'm assuming that wasn't the case, but that's something where just, you know, where he explains it enough where he's giving himself an out. He's giving himself an out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's 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 the reason. Like, let's say he's guilty. Allegedly, just hypothetically. He he knows that he was all over her. He knows he handled her. Right. right? He knows exactly
2: what happened between them.
1: So now he goes to the sheriff's office and he's like, well, I'm going to just say the quiet part out loud. I was there. And not only that, I touched her body because I had to see if she was a drunk person that needed to be woken up. Right. So that's going to explain everything that that you need to have explained. So if you happen to find my DNA or my fingerprints on her on her car in the vicinity, that's why I already told you. Remember, Right, yeah. I already told you. Wh- and what by happened. the way,
2: don't forget, I came in here voluntarily. If I was the guy who did it, why would I come here? Well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mark, you would go there because you knew your DNA was going to be found on her. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't go to the police, once they matched it your DNA, yeah. they're going to come looking for you. And he knew that. So you have no choice at that point. And I'm, I apologize. Did you mention, Has he? did he have a previous criminal history? We're going to talk about that today. Okay. Because I wonder if he would be in CODIS or anything like that. What What was the date on this case again? 1992. 92. So CODIS would have been around. It would have been relatively new at that point. It, but still, it would have been, there would have been something where they could have entered that DNA into that database.
1: But the thing with Mark is, and you'll see, he offers to give his blood. He offers to to give his blood. He, you know, goes in willingly to be fingerprinted. He knows enough about the situation to know that anything he offers them isn't going to help them tie him to the case or he wouldn't be offering it. Right. In my opinion, if he hypothetically, if he did this allegedly.
2: And I know I know where you are feeling. I, I, I'm trying to be open minded about it because there is a potential that this guy does just have bad luck. I mean, it wouldn't be the first person who's ever walked up on a crime scene and indirectly now infused themselves. And picked up the body. What's that?
1: And picked up the body. (laughs) I mean, listen, it wouldn't be. It's weird, man.
2: (laughs) There's been other cases where people have been wrongfully convicted for a crime they didn't commit because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm not saying it's the norm, but I, I think we always have to approach it with some level of skepticism because we've said it before. You'd rather. You know, a hundred guilty men go free then one innocent man go to a, mm-hmm. a prison for a crime he didn't commit. But I will say the things are already starting to stack up against him because it's not just, oh, I walked up and I touched her body. It's he's 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 remembering things or he's he's indicating that he may have seen something that you wouldn't have seen if you had just walked up on the body. The rings being one of them. And then also and, this-
1: and the fact that he that he knew. She'd been shot. How did you know she'd been shot? And how did you not see before you decide to reach your whole ass body into the into the window and, and basically pull her into a bear hug? How did you not see all the blood? Right. You said the dome light was on. Yeah. And when the first responders got to the to the scene, as soon as Roy Moore, Moore walks over there, he looks in the window and he's like, "I we got a we got a, a problem here. We have a girl. She's been attacked." He knew that Michelle was a girl. He knew that she'd been hurt. So how does any person with the dome light on look into the window and be like, "Oh, I don't see this this completely matted blood hair." How did he know she'd been shot? Yeah, you know, like you, it was just all blood. How would you know that she'd been shot?
2: Mm. And then couple that with with the whole responding to the station and then giving a different name, and it looks like it was a you know collaborative pulling effort up on the crime
1: scene and being like, "I brother, found her. Is brother. she dead? You know, like, yeah. like why? Why? Not <laughs> so,
2: good. Not good. We'll see where it goes. Good. At minimum, suspicious. At minimum,
1: super suspicious. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right. So Brenda Schwitz's interview with Mark on November 8th was not recorded or transcribed, so we don't know exactly or verbatim what was said, although she did make notes in a notebook that wouldn't surface until years later when someone else was on trial for the murder of Michelle Lawless. In fact, when somebody else had been convicted of the murder of Michelle Lawless, suddenly this notebook that she claims no longer existed suddenly was in existence again. But anyways, I digress. Much of Mark Abbott's story when he talked to Brenda remained consistent with what he told Beardsley and Drury earlier that day. But he did add some details that no one had ever heard before. Mark said he stopped behind Michelle's car. He waited for a bit. When he didn't see anyone inside her vehicle, he got out. He approached the driver's side door, reached in through the window, lifted Michelle's body, at which time he realized he was not dealing with a drunk teenager. He got scared. And left the scene. No mention of a hitchhiker, right? Nothing about a mysterious hitchhiker on the side of the road that he told Beardsley about. So when Mark got spooked and he left the scene, he said he drove around Michelle's car and then he went to the parking lot of the Cut Mart, which was right across the interstate from the crime scene. And this is like a convenience store, but it's closed. But he planned to use the payphone in the parking lot to call the police. Mark claimed that while he was dialing 911, a man in a small white car drove up next to him and stopped. Mark claimed the man, who he described as having a dark complexion and possibly being Mexican, told Mark that he needed gas. And he also needed Mark to take him to get gas. Apparently, Mark told Brenda Schwitz, quote, I thought it was strange. He was driving a car. Why did he need to go with me? I was scared and I drove away fast. I was driving and he was still talking to me. End quote. Now, according to Mark, it was at this time that he'd driven straight to the sheriff's office to report what he had seen. Remember that Mark had spoken to Beardsley and Drury less than an hour before this. and He never mentioned the man in the white car in the Cutmart parking lot. But the description of this person and this vehicle was oddly similar to the description that Roy Moore had given of a man and a vehicle that had approached him the night before as he was securing the crime scene. And it does seem very coincidental that Mark would not have this detail when he spoke to Beardsley, but did have it after he went to the sheriff's office and sat down with Sheriff Bill Farrell, who would have had access to the case notes that law enforcement from the scene had made the night before. On that day, on September 8th, when he went to the sheriff's office, Mark had sat down with Sheriff Bill Farrell in his office, and then he gave Brenda Schwitz his statement, and he offered to be vampired, which meant he was open to having his blood drawn, but this never happened. They didn't take him up on that offer. Now, remember that Deputy Chief Tom Beardsley had told Brenda Schwitz about his suspicions of Mark Abbott. He said that he was sending Mark in to be fingerprinted while Beardsley went and looked at the crime scene one more time. And then he wanted to come in and sit down with Mark at the station and give him a proper interview. Well, that never happened because by the time Beardsley arrived, Mark had already talked to both Brenda and Bill Farrell, and Beardsley had sort of been forced out of the case. He wasn't the lead investigator. He wasn't given the chance to interview Mark Abbott again, and his concerns about Mark being you know, suspicious were continually overlooked, ignored, and minimized. Years later, Tom Beardsley would tell investigative journalist and creator of the Lawless Files podcast, Bob Miller... That he felt he'd been taken off the case because he was suspicious of the Abbots. And Sheriff Bill Farrell had a relationship with their father, Larry Abbott, who was known to make donations to Farrell's campaign. Bob Miller asked Beardsley, Well, do you think that the sheriff would like kill a murder investigation because of campaign donations? And Beardsley responded, No, it was probably more of a tit for tat thing. Miller asked Beardsley basically to clarify the statement, and Beardsley responded that he did not believe believe that Sheriff Farrell was on Larry Abbott's payroll if that's what Bob Miller was trying to get at. So what could he have meant by that, Larry Abbott's payroll? Before I kind of clarify, what are you what are your thoughts? Where are you at?
2: It's so hard when you talk about these cases because I'm reading it two dimensional. Like I'm I'm reading along with the script. I'm hearing from you. And I don't know these individuals personally. So it's so much easier to judge someone when you've had the chance to sit down and talk to them or even just observe them for a period of time. It's so easy to speculate from here as to as to what could have taken place. Obviously, it's possible. Obviously, it's possible that Sheriff Farrell didn't, you know, did his quick preliminary investigation, came to the conclusion very quickly that the abbots weren't involved. And, and didn't want to muddy the water. So he said, listen, as a favor to a friend, I'm just going to take over here and let's go find the real killer. Because it doesn't look great for the Abbots, but I think they're just victims of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's my assessment. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go from there. That's, the, that's one version. You could have a more serious version where he's looking at the facts of the case, looking at Mark Abbott, talking to Mark Abbott, talking to maybe Matt Abbott as well, and realizing, shit. They might have had something to do with this and it ain't looking good for them. So I got to save them um, before they step on their own. You know what? And they, they find themselves in a pair of, you know, metal bracelets. So they he got involved, kind of, you know, intervened to make sure that anybody who was suspicious of them wasn't involved with the case. That's the worst case scenario here where you have a an actual cover up, right? Yeah. Where Farrell has figured out. It's probably them. I got to fix it. And then there also could be the version, this you know, there's another version where it's a coincidence where Ferrell sees a, a popular case that's going to be publicized and being the news, and he we've had this before in my own life where you we have cases every single day, and you have those particular bosses or leaders where when it's a case that's going to get a little bit more publicity, suddenly they don't they want to work it with you or they want to be part of it and they want to be they want to spearhead it because they know. That there's going to be some media attention with it. I can tell you I personally work with people like that. So could that be it as well? And maybe Bill Farrell's a terrible investigator. I I don't know. I don't know. I I try not to look too deep into it without knowing these guys. But I will say, based on the conversation you told me about as far as him talking behind closed doors with the Abbott br- boy. Mark I, that's, Abbott, yeah. Mark Abbott, that's not good. That shouldn't be how it should be one investigator talking to these people. And it definitely, if you're gonna talk to them, it should be on tape or at minimum. Some type of audio recording.
1: Unless you've absolutely ruled him out as a suspect, and I just don't see how you could by that. Not at that
2: point. Hell no. So
1: I would assume, considering this is a small town and a small police force, Sheriff Farrell would have been on the case anyways. But do you think it would make sense for him to bring somebody like Brenda Schwitz, who had no experience with murder investigations to the forefront and push somebody like tom beardsley who was technically his second in command and did have experience with murder investigations to the periphery do you yeah. do, would that make sense logistically
2: logistically it wouldn't make sense yeah but again anecdotally i can tell you there were cases where that's why i get we're, uh, we're judging these people based on their names and based on the circumstances we don't know the dynamics in there did 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 Farrell have, like, a personal connection, which fits? I can't even say her name right. Was there, like, something where he was trying to elevate her? Were they friends? Was it something where he was trying to give her a break and push the you know the other guy to the back of the But, you know, but the Beardsley room?
1: was his second-in-command. This is the chief deputy sheriff.
2: Like I get it. But what was the relationship between them? If
1: he wanted to elevate Brenda, then why wouldn't he just do it (laughs) you know he's the sheriff he could do whatever he wants
2: well elevate her in the sense of like hey i'm gonna give you the keys on this one you're gonna be driving the car on this one because i want to see you get ahead in your career beardsley back of the bus you know what i mean like hey take a back seat again anecdotally i'm not just even guessing there have been guys in my own police department who shouldn't be search you know investigating a missing cat case but the lieutenant in charge of our division is you know buddies with them they go out for beers on friday nights and suddenly so and so is in charge of a cold case investigation right and they have no business doing it and they're the ones interrogating or interviewing main persons of interest when you have myself and other people who have gone to multiple interview and interrogation schools that has happened and it's the most frustrating everything ever
1: yeah i I could see that in in like in in a way of like the the boys club, but this is a woman. It's 1992. What's well, the day, like? What is, is Farrell sleeping with her? And he's uh, that's to, what like, see yeah. that's that's what
2: I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. We're two. Deme- I'm not saying it happened, right? Because I don't I don't know. But uh, it's so hard when you don't know these people and they're basically characters to us of a story.
1: You don't know the context. We don't know the, the, the context. Yeah, what, we're
2: like you. And I wasn't gonna say it, but I'm glad you did. What was going on between Bill? And, and, and I'm not trying to even down, you know, discredit Schwitz and what she was capable well, of. I mean, and, there's
1: no discredit. She's, she's a police she's officer. She's, I don't even think she was th- probably Well, new that to murder
2: investigations. N-
1: no murder investigation experience, so right? New. So new. So new. First time so, for everything. Right. Um, yeah. It, it seems odd, but yeah, let's, we, let's continue. And we we'll don't see.
2: know. Right. But there's a lot of things and, and obviously the more obvious one is Bill wanted someone who was little bit less experience because they weren't going to most likely get the they results. Gonna,
1: yeah. Or somebody that he knew he could influence and influence, and manipulate control.
2: things. like yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So a lot of different scenarios at play. Maybe
1: somebody who wanted to advance, but knew like as a woman at that time in that small town, like there's never going to be an opening. All these dudes are going out to the strip clubs, bonding. She's not doing that. And and now suddenly somebody hands her like this opportunity and she's like, well, I'm going to do whatever I need to do, whatever I need to do. Yeah. And he knew that maybe, you know, possible
2: a lot of different layers to this. It's not just the case. What are the dynamics between the actual personalities Mm -hmm. that we're discussing here? And we'll never know that because there's a lot of things that don't get put in a deposition or put in a witness statement or put in a police report. You don't know what the dynamics were inside that building before this case took place. And I hate to say it, that does play a role in how effective a police department is. Personalities, how well they work together, what is their dissension among the ra- amongst the ranks. All these things can in- can inhibit a case's ability to-, to get the best results.
1: Well, I know that it looks like Bill Farrell and Brenda Schwitz hid things from in the investigation. It looks like they purposely withheld things from um, the defense of Josh Kazer. It looks like that they did. I mean, right? They did. So, um, with, which is why there was a shitload of Brady violations in this case. So, did they? Was that a? Was that like an orchestrated effort right. to, to hide things, or did they just accidentally separately um, f- forget to, to give all of this information? I, I, w- mm. I would say, like, chances are orchestrated.
2: Sounds sounds but- more yeah. Especially if you're having Brady violations, because that would that you'd have to prove or have information that says they deliberately withheld information. Not just, oh, this was an accident. So it
1: it doesn't just look like they withheld information. They, like, definitely did.
2: Yeah. Do you think I'm making excuses for them right now, or do you think, okay, just making sure, Mm -hmm. like, as far as we can leave this in the episode. I just, I'm trying to give all angles because it's easy to just say, oh, definitely.
1: No, I appreciate it. I I do. I appreciate it. I, I think that as this case goes on, you'll find yourself being, you know, less unbiased open, about it yeah
2: less open to other scenarios and more like oh okay kind of like adnan Syed case where i was like well listen you know part one part I mean, you two you can't
1: you can't say that name right now man and that's why i hot, said it it's a hot button that's why i topic said it currently that's why i said it <laughs> the the true crime community is at war
2: about yeah. this i strongly recommend i know they've given us a lot of shout outs go listen to the prosecutors podcast
1: 10 out of it, 10 would recommend
2: <laughs> they, they did a great series on yeah. the adnan Syed hayman lee case and these two are professionals, former prosecutors, covering the case by going over the defense uh, Public the transcription. Yeah. yeah, going over everything and actually looking at the defense records and seeing and dissecting them as it's
1: been riveting, honestly. As actual yeah.
2: prosecutors. You yes. know, so we were just talking about Brett and Alice before the episode. So go check it out. I know they've given us a lot of shout outs. I know that when they covered this series, they gave a shout out to you as far as your research. So go go if you're looking for oh, information nice. on a series, go watch it.
1: Yeah. Listen to it.
2: Yeah, listen to it. Um, so, oh, that's right. They're not YouTube. Good point. Yeah, they should be. They should be. We
1: gotta mm. talk to them about that. But mm. so, what would what would Beardsley have meant? Like tit for tat, not on Larry Abbott's payroll. Well, let's talk about the Abbotts a little bit as far as what we know. So the Abbotts were a, I, I suppose you would say, a financially well off family, highly respected, with many connections in the area. Not only did they own and operate Store 24 in Scott City, which was a 24-hour convenience store and gas station, but Larry Abbott was part owner of the trailer park his son Mark resided in. They had rental properties all over the country. And it was also a well-known and well-circulated rumor that Larry Abbott had ties to organized crime. Ronnie Burton, a man in his 50s who knew both the Abbott and lawless families, would later talk to Bob Miller about his involvement in the case. And we're going to talk about what his involvement was throughout this series, but he also made some direct statements about Sheriff Bill Farrell. He said, quote, I don't care if it's on the record or not, and I can't prove it. Bill was kind of a kingpin in Scott County for a lot of illegal activities going on. He was a crooked sheriff. There's no question about it in my mind. When you've lived in this county all your life and you know good people and you know bad people, you can read between the lines. End quote. And this wasn't just Ronnie Burton, you know, a lot of people in the area kind of felt this way. Burton said that the Abbots were involved with a lot of drug trafficking and there was some protection from law enforcement happening, and maybe it had been in Bill Farrell's best interest to not have Mark or Matt Abbott looked at too closely. Now, the Abbott boys were also well-known amongst their peers in the area, but not always for the right reason. For much of their lives, they did seem to be on a good path. I mean, when it comes to being well-off in an area like this, they they were very well-off. They had their two parents who were married. I believe their mother was kind of like a stay-at-home mom. She had a housekeeper. You know, they they had cars. They had pretty much whatever they wanted. And uh, during high school, they were very popular. They were good looking. They had money in general. They were also known to be very charming, fun to be around the life of the party. And even after high school, things seemed to be going well for Mark and Matt. Matt and one of his other brothers owned a company in Dexter called Interstate Manufacturing that built automatic cotton carts for John Deere. Mark attended college for a little while um, at the same college that Michelle Lawless was attending at the time of her murder. And he worked for multiple Abbott family businesses, including interstate manufacturing. And he also did some maintenance work on some of the family rental properties, which is what he claimed to have been doing early on in the night of Michelle's murder. We're going to talk about that soon as well. But by 1992, the twins were 23 years old and they'd gotten reputations for not only being charismatic and, a fun time, but for being kind of like the local bad boys. They were always out in the town. They were always with different girls, drinking, carousing, and they had a few brushes with the law, and this left them with a very negative view of law enforcement. At the time of the murder, Matt Abbott was on probation for stealing a three-wheeler when he was drunk, and Mark had already gotten more than one DWI, leading to his license being revoked. So they liked to drink, right? They liked to drink. They liked to party. They um like to to hang out with girls. Mark Abbott, for instance, I think he was like, don't don't quote me on this, but he was, I think, married. And he also had a girlfriend. And he also had like other girls and women that he was kind of seeing on the side, like several. So and this is kind of all well known. And everybody kind of knows everyone. And he was just allowed to operate. The, the thing that kept coming up is that they were both really just charming, um, really easy to be around, fun to be around. They lit up the room, life of the party. Like if, if they were there, you knew it was about to be like a good night. You might not remember most of the night, but you would have fun. And at the end of the day, the way you would feel the next morning would let you know that you'd had fun, even if you didn't remember much of what was happening. Additionally, the rumor around town was that the Abbott twins were both involved with drugs and, in fact, a business very, very close to where Michelle had been found dead in her car, was also rumored to be involved with drug trafficking. Farrell Mobile Homes, owned by Glenn Farrell and located literally just down the road from where Michelle's car was parked, that was said to be involved in drugs as well. It was rumored that the drugs would be shipped to the sales lot in RVs that were going to be sold, and then, you know, whoever was going to Sell the drugs would come and get them, and then go on their way. Um, quick,
2: quick, um, quick thing! Farrell mobile homes connected to Bill Farrell at all? or Just oh, coincidence. So,
1: Glenn Farrell, <laughs> no, you
2: can't just <laughs> say that and then move on. Like we're talking about a possible connection and why Bill would do something, and then you mentioned Farrell mobile mobile homes.
1: So, Glenn Farrell is distantly related. To Sheriff Bill Farrell, very oh, distantly related. So still. they're not close. They don't right? I, I can't find it. So I talked to Bob Miller about this as well. and he's the the guy who does the lawless files podcast, and you guys should go listen to it. It's, it's awesome. He's so very thorough. So much information. I talked to him, and he's like, yeah, they're very distantly related, but it doesn't seem like they had much of a relationship. The same thing happened when he said that to me. I was like, but still, like I mean, they're related. <laughs> you know, I so mean,
2: how close were they?
1: He says they're not, they weren't close, but you know.
2: You're running a le- know. an illegal trafficking ring out there and your Allegedly. cousin, your distant cousin is, you know, law enforcement in that jurisdiction would be nice to have that person mm-hmm. as part of your operation, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, I mean, it's a small town. Um, I'm, I'm
2: throwing things out here. I know. Again, I know. am just throwing, I'm throwing, I'm throwing scenarios Distantly out there. Distantly related. <laughs> okay. Distantly related. It's closer than not being related.
1: I agree. So years later, in uh, 1997, a private investigator named Jim Sullins was attempting to put together a case to argue for Josh Kaiser's innocence. And he interviewed a man named David Buckner. And David Buckner had been an employee at Farrell's at the time of Michelle's murder. And Buckner claimed that when he went into work on the Monday morning after Michelle's murder, he found blood in one of the trailers. And Glenn Farrell himself would contact Jim Sullins, I believe, in 1997 a week after he got out of prison for tax evasion. And he told Sullins, he basically called Sullins and he was like, listen, I know who killed Michelle. And if you can give me the correct initials of the person or people responsible, then I will confirm it or deny it. And I'm not going to get too much into what happened, but basically Jim Sullins gave some initials of who, who he thought was involved, the initials of two people and apparently, at that point, um, Glenn Farrell ugh, disconnected the call. And then a couple of days later, Sullins got a letter from Farrell's attorney, like basically cease and desist, like do not contact this person. So, but Glenn Farrell did did tell a few people that he knew who killed Michelle, and it had been confessed to him by by somebody or somebody. So we're gonna talk about that. It's also worth noting that years after testifying against Josh Kayser and pointing to him as the murderer of Michelle Lawless, Mark Abbott and his brother Matt were both convicted of selling meth, along with another friend, Kevin Williams, who, trust me, we're going to talk about soon. So I would say like, oh, there was rumors that the Abbott brothers were involved in drugs and there were. And those rumors would be confirmed many years later in a big, huge drug bust in that area. um, So not good dudes. Not good dudes.
2: I think it's fair to say that Mark and Matt rolling up on this young girl and possibly being a witness, in most cases, if the person is innocent, you're not going to find an extensive criminal history attached to them, even if it wasn't at the time. Again, this happened after her murder, but that doesn't mean they weren't carrying out this type of criminal activity during the time she was murdered. Which I believe, in fact, they were. That's what I'm saying. So there's something. So it's like they were criminals still at the time. They just hadn't been caught yet. So, again, it all starts to paint a picture of maybe these people aren't as innocent as they want you to believe.
1: I don't think they wanted anybody to believe they were innocent.
2: Yes, like, they did. Why, they they go to, why would they go to, to the believe... station and you saw, heard the interview? Yo, oh, they, my God. What happened?
1: Yo, they wanted people. To, they wanted law enforcement to believe they were innocent of this this murder, this crime. That's what I'm saying. And yet, they they allegedly ran their mouths to anybody that would listen that they were involved, that they they had something to do with it, or that they knew something about it. And I mean, in general, these these kids, these boys, they're twenty three. I call them boys because they act like boys. But these men, these grown ass men, ran around this area, um, Cape Girardeau, uh, Benton, Scott City. They ran around this place like they owned it, and they made no like motions to hide their their bad boy behavior. It was almost as if they really enjoyed that, that bad boy reputation and they wanted people to know they were a force to be reckoned with and they had protection and they had people in their corner. So
2: street cred. Street
1: cred. Let's take a quick break. and We'll be right back. All right. So we're back. So November 8th, right? Mark Abbott goes into the station, talks to Brenda Schwitz, changes his story. Now suddenly he's at the Cut Mart parking lot and some Mexican guy in a white car pulls up and, and tells Mark, you have to come and get gas with me. And Mark's like, screw you. And he's scared and he pulls off and he goes to the sheriff's office. On November 11th, 1992, a meeting of law enforcement officials involved in the murder case took place. The people present were Sheriff Bill Farrell. Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley, Deputy Brenda Schwitz, Deputy Jim Chambers, and Highway Patrol investigators Don Wyndham and Dennis Overbay. Now, during that meeting, a list of suspects was created. And contrary to what Schwitz and Farrell would later testify to, Mark Abbott was on that list, even though he was at the very bottom. See, it would be the position of the Scott County Sheriff's Office that Mark Abbott was not an early suspect in Michelle's murder at all. They would testify to that during the trial. And before the trial started in 1994, Josh's lawyer, Josh Kaiser's lawyer, Al Lowe's, had asked Brenda Schwitz if she had any notes that she'd taken during her investigation. You know, handwritten notes, because, you know, you were a police officer. You usually take the notes with your hand like a pen and paper, and then you'll have them transcribed or you'll type them out to make an official report. And so he wants to know, where's that first draft? Where's your first draft of notes? And Brenda said, yeah, I did take notes during the investigation, but I didn't keep them. She said she'd gotten rid of her notes after they'd been formally typed up. But when yeah, that's re-
2: by the way, by the way, so you guys know that is like police 101, even as a patrolman, You Mm -hmm. have the little notebooks that you take out of your pocket. Yeah, the little steno pads. And you might use them just to write down a name and date of birth when you're looking up someone's license. One of the first things they teach you in the academy is even after that notebook's completely filled, and I've mentioned it on this show before, I would take that notebook out when it's full because you fill them up after like a month. I used to have 30, 40 notebooks of those those little steno notebooks in my locker. And the reason you would keep them is because, hey, listen, something comes up, you know, Six months later, it could be you like an refer I. to them. Yeah. It could be like an uh, internal affairs complaint. It could be something where there was a murder and they're trying to confirm someone's alibi. For example, when I go up to the car, I may run the driver for his license. But if there's passengers in the vehicle, I may take their names and date of birth if they're, if they're willing to give that information. I may not necessarily run them, but I keep them in my notebook. So if you have Tammy Smith who says, yeah, I couldn't have been involved in that crime. I was with Jim Smith and he got stopped by the cops. Go check, they took my name. I may not put it in my official, you know, dispatch report because it's irrelevant at that point, Mm -hmm. but I can go back to that notebook, which I always dated the notebooks of, you know, the duration of when the notebook was started to when, you know, it was filled. I can go back through my little catalog, find that notebook and go back to that date and say, Yeah, you know what? There was a Tammy Smith in the car. I took her name and date of birth down. I may give that person an alibi for a crime they were being accused of being involved in. So there's so many elements where those notes are extremely important. And whether you're a patrolman, a detective, whatever, your written notes are, they even call it sometimes for detectives, your murder book, where you'd keep your cases, your handwritten notes for years. When I was doing the OJ case, Out in uh, Los Angeles, we worked with the lead investigator on that case, the guy who was actually on the phone with O.J. during the Bronco chase. Mm -hmm. His name is uh, Detective Tom Lang. He's done a couple hundred different homicide investigations. He still had his written notes from that case when we did the show 10 years ago. He still Mm -hmm. had all of his murder books.
1: What year was that? It
2: was like 1991, wasn't it? Yeah, it was right around. It was in the 90s. And this wasn't until like 2016, 17 when we interviewed this guy. He's retired. Mm -hmm. And he still had all his boxes with his handwritten notes from all of the cases he worked. There were illustrations. There were diagrams. There was a lunch order for the day. Whatever it was, he kept it all. Anything that was happening during that time. The reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is the fact that this detective who we already established was relatively new, Brenda, You would never you never throw out your notes ever, even after they're transcribed.
1: It's so funny because I keep all my notebooks and like I do like this says Crime Weekly, February 2023 at the top. Right. And I have all of these. I don't know why they're just filled with, you know, notes and then random things. And I keep them because I'm a pack rat, not because anybody's going to ever ask me for shit or care about what I wrote. But, you know, I also write down ideas or like I sketch things or so I always keep them just in case. And they are dated. Um, but Brenda allegedly did not. Did that's, not and I, just wanted,
2: I didn't want you to skate past that because that's a very, very significant thing that you said, because it doesn't mm-hmm. take a, a, a salty veteran with years of experience to know you keep your notebooks because that's something that's taught to you in the academy. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm making it a big deal.
1: So in 1994, she tells Josh's lawyer, nah, I don't have these notes anymore. These, these written notes, but remember Rick Walter? Um, he was with, uh, more Roy Moore. They were the first two people on the scene to Michelle's car because they happened to be at the station. Still filling out paperwork from their shift. When the, uh, what were their names the the couple came in to report Michelle's car right before Mark Abbott came in and they went out to the scene and Rick Walter always believed something was weird about what was going on. He never really bought the fact that Josh Kaiser had done this crime or committed this murder. So when he became sheriff of Scott County in 2004, he made some changes to the department he that he didn't agree with the way that uh, the previous chief Bill Farrell had run things. And then in 2006, he was able to get some money to hire someone to work full time on the Michelle Lawless case to bring fresh eyes to it. And obviously, he doesn't. Want anybody to really know that this is happening because technically the case is closed, somebody's in prison for it. And the rumor around town was Sheriff Bill Farrell or ex Sheriff Bill Farrell at that time was like, If y'all want to look at this case again, like you better watch yourselves. You know, we're going to talk more about Sheriff Bill Farrell and his alleged threats to people, but. He didn't Walter didn't want anybody to know that he was looking back into it, but he wanted somebody to look back into it. He wanted fresh eyes on it. And the person that he chose to do this was a police officer named Brendan Cade. And Cade started going through boxes upon boxes of case files. And he found many pieces of evidence that would later be deemed Brady violations in the case against Josh Kaiser. One of these pieces of evidence happened to be Brenda Schwitz's notebook where she'd taken physical notes during the Michelle Lawless murder investigation. So during the November 11th, 1992 meeting, Brenda had taken notes, including a list of suspects. On that list were the names of men that Michelle had been dating at or around the time of her death, including Leon Lamb, who we talked about in part one. He was the man that Michelle had slept with pretty much directly before her murder. Besides whoever killed her, Leon was the last person to see her alive. And there was another man named Lyle Day, who she was also seeing And the last name on that list was Mark Abbott. And next to his name in Brenda's handwriting, the numbers 344 were written. And 344 happened to be Tom Beardsley's badge number, which suggests to me that Beardsley had been the one to make sure Abbott's name was on that list. And they wanted anybody to know, like, we didn't put him on this list. Tom Beardsley did, right? But remember that um, Brenda Schwitz and Chief or Sheriff Bill Farrell are later going to testify at Josh's trial, like, no, Mark was never a suspect during those early days. We never looked at him that way. He was, like, completely cleared. But that clearly wasn't true because at this November 11, 1992 meeting, just a couple of days after Michelle Lawless is found dead, Mark Abbott's name is on that list. And not only that, but Brenda Schwitz makes notes. And and in these notes, it seems like she suspects him so i just don't, I just don't
2: understand it I, I don't think there is a way to understand which is why you're making a big deal about this i don't see how you clear someone who puts themselves at the crime scene and not only puts themselves at the crime scene changes their story constantly i'm not even going that far but just like their dna's on the victim right like they're putting themselves there with no corroborating witness to say that you know well, to give we them don't know alibot. that his
1: dna was on the victim
2: well, he he's acknowledging that his he's DNA could be on it might her. Be, yes. He's giving you a reason to believe that if you do the proper testing, her his DNA could and should be found on her. He's mm-hmm. putting himself at the crime scene and actually interacting physically with the victim. Oh, yes. And yet, there's nothing exculpatory. Claiming he thought
1: she was drunk when the dome lights allegedly on. Whatever, whatever and, he says, and then she's covered in blood.
2: What whatever he says, that's fine. None of that would would fall under exculpatory evidence where you could say, okay, he was here, but we have evidence to prove that he was with someone else when he pulled up on her, an impartial witness mm-hmm. who corroborated everything he said. We also had a vehicle drive by that pulled over, and the witness in that vehicle said they saw Mark Abbott get out, pull her out of the car, tried to, and then get in his car and leave. Like, There's nothing to, to substantiate his his version of what happened. So at minimum, even if you believe him, he's still on your list and you can never say, yeah, we, we cleared him. How would you do that?
1: I mean, they did. They said, I think it was like, exactly. I agree. Like why go to those lengths to testify at this trial? Like, Oh, Mark, Mark was not a suspect. Just say like, yeah, he was a suspect because he was he found her body and he was there. And like some of the shit he said didn't make sense. So, yeah, he was a suspect. But eventually we found that this suspect we have on trial now was more viable. Just say that. Like, what are you doing? What are you what are you doing? Why are you Just like say less, man? You're doing too much.
2: I think also what we may find here is that Josh Kaiser was obviously convicted for this crime when he was yeah. when he was charged. And when you're building a case against someone, it's not only your responsibility to find the evidence that paints the picture to prove that this individual committed this crime, it's also your job to rule out any other suspects, So you can Mm -hmm. say to a jury, hey, listen, not only does everything point to this guy, any other potential suspects, we ruled them out through witness testimony, alibis, or other exculpatory evidence. So if you have other people on that list, like a Mark Abbott, you may not get a conviction for Josh Kaiser because as the judge the the jury may say is hey listen yeah he doesn't look good but there's still reasonable doubt because there are other players in this game who you also can't definitively rule out therefore we don't know if it's Josh Kaiser or it's Mark Abbott and therefore it's a, that's where you would have uh, an acquittal, so they so had are you to rule saying, out.
1: Them. Are you saying that you think they said he wasn't a suspect? Because if they said yeah, he was an early suspect, then the jury would want to know. Well, why why was he eventually ruled out? Why yeah, wasn't he a suspect course, after a while? That's where you could right. potentially have to... some Brady
2: violations. Where same thing with I know I mentioned it in one way, but let me and I'm not even doing it to give him out here, but it's the same thing with the Adnan Syed case now, where the defense, if you're on that team, Adnan Syed, where you think he's innocent, they're not saying oh, there's not a ton of evidence that implicates him. They're saying, oh, there's other suspects that could also do it, right? They're saying, don't look over here, look over here. Now, in that case, we may not personally believe that, but the argument within the judicial system could be, yeah, you can't say that they didn't do it. And that's why in that case, you have a lot of controversy because in that case as well, they're saying there were Brady violations where other potential suspects weren't completely vetted. You could have a similar situation here where these investigators have tunnel vision on Josh Kaiser. They don't, at their core, believe Mark Abbott is responsible. And even though there's some things that don't look good for him, they don't personally believe that he did it. And therefore, they're, quote unquote, ruling him out, not only because they may like Mark, but also because by not ruling him out, it would weaken their case against Josh Kaiser, who clearly they they felt was responsible for this crime.
1: They fe- Yeah, maybe they felt that. Maybe they did. You don't believe me. I don't know if they felt that he was responsible for it or if it was convenient for him to be responsible for it is well, what I
2: mean. Maybe they didn't let me rephrase, even if they didn't think he was responsible, they were charging him for the crime and they, they wanted were trying to the jury to find him to be responsible. They wanted they wanted yeah. the conviction. Yeah. And having other suspects not vetted, that would that would le- lessen the likelihood that they would get that guilty it conviction. It might be reasonable doubt, yeah. Right.
1: So Brenda Schwitz also wrote that Sheriff Farrell had suggested giving Mark Abbott a polygraph exam. And attached to Brenda's notebook with a paperclip was another piece of evidence that had not been disclosed to Josh Kaiser's defense team. Another Brady violation, if you will. It was a typed up police report written by a Scott City police officer named Bobby Wooten. So what you're dealing with here is two different law enforcement bodies. You've got um, Scott County Sheriff's Office and then Scott City Police This was a police officer with the Scott City Police. And the report was dated November 18th, 1992, just about 10 days after Michelle's murder. Wooten wrote in his report that Mark Abbott had come into the Scott City police station and he gave a statement about, you know, the night of Michelle's murder, claiming he knew who the person was that had approached him while he'd been trying to call 911 at the payphone in the cutbart parking lot. The afternoon after Michelle's murder... Mark had only been able to describe this person as having a dark complexion, possibly of Hispanic descent. But now he had a name in the name that that he gave. This person was not Hispanic at all, not of Hispanic descent at all. So Wooten wrote that Abbott had told him that he didn't want to give this information to the Scott County Sheriff's Department because, quote, Deputy Beardsley thinks I'm a murderer and the sheriff wants me to take a polygraph. The people at the sheriff's department are a bunch of assholes. End quote. Then Mark Abbott asked Wooten if he knew who Ray Ring was, and Wooten said he did not. And then Wooten wrote, quote, he said he met Ring recently at a party. I understood the party was the night of the murder. Then Abbott said he saw Ring again, right after he found the lawless girl's body. Ring was across the interstate driving a white car and looking for gas. Abbott said Ring sent word through his friends, Kevin and Terry Williams, that he wanted to talk to Abbott, presumably to find out what Abbott saw that night, end quote. So as soon as this interview was over, Wooten called Bill Farrell and Deputy Chambers to let them know what Mark Abbott had told them, and then he had his notes typed up and delivered to Sheriff Farrell's inbox so that it would be waiting for the sheriff when he came into work the next day. This report in anything about the interview between Mark Abbott and Officer Bobby Wooten never made it to Josh's defense team, but... It is clear that the information did make it to the Scott County Sheriff's Office because Brenda Schwitz made notes about it in her mysterious missing notebook. She said on November 19th, quote, Abbott went back to the accident scene after leaving sheriff's office, and then she puts an exclamation point after it, and she actually wrote S.O., but that stands for sheriff's office, and she wrote an exclamation point, which means she thought this was notable. And on November 23rd, Brenda Schwitz wrote, quote, "'Take polygraph. Why telling several stories? Tell Abbott we haven't talked with Ray Ring. Mark Abbott, ask him if he knew Michelle. Don't mention Ray Ring. Ask about Guy at Payphone. See if he gives names.'" End quote. So clearly, Brenda Schwitz is testifying at it in 1994. Like, no, Mark Abbott wasn't a a suspect in those early days. Right. But in her notebook, she seems suspicious. (laughs) Yes.
2: No, I agree completely. She's actually doing a pretty good job. (laughs) She's actually doing what she's supposed to do in her notebook, at least. Mm -hmm. So she's she's on the right path. And I'm not saying that this is going to lead anywhere. But based on what we've heard, based on what I've heard, this is the right course of action. These are the Mm -hmm. questions you should be asking. These are the red flags you should be noting, you know, going back to the crime scene, all these different things. Asking yourself, why is he giving different versions so quickly? He's a witness. He shouldn't have much information. It should be pretty obvious what happened that night. Should be a traumatic situation for him. He should remember his brief interaction with this woman uh, and exactly what happened and what didn't. Why does he have to keep coming back and changing his story? That's because he's going home and thinking about it. And, I guess if you're in the camp that he didn't do it, you could be saying, yeah, he knew that it was not looking good for him. So he's getting nervous and he's he's psyching himself out and he's trying to help because he doesn't want to be accused of something he didn't commit. That is possible, but it's also possible he's doing it because he's scared because he knows that if he doesn't correct a story, it may come back to him. That is also viable.
1: I think it's interesting too. That Brenda Schwitz gets this information about what Mark told Bobby Wooten, right? About Ray Ring. And she's saying, like, okay, tell Abbott, don't tell him that we've talked to Ray. Let's get him in a room, ask him about this whole payphone cut mart thing and see if he volunteers this information that we already know he's told somebody else. So she's trying to catch him up. She's trying to see if he's this is not how you treat a person that you don't view as a suspect in a murder investigation. One
2: thousand percent. She's trying to validate his credibility. She's not sure he's telling her the truth.
1: Now, it just so happened that Ray Ring, who, by the way. Not Mexican, not of Hispanic descent. He was mixed. He was half black, half white. He'd been at a party the night of Michelle's murder, and he'd been there with one of Michelle's boyfriends, a man named Lyle Day. But in order for any of this to make sense going forward, we have to kind of pause in the timeline and we have to go back and talk about Michelle's relationships and her love life, which admittedly was, in my opinion, very complicated and messy at the time of her death. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back and we'll dive into that. So, right, we're back. So it's pretty clear from everything that I read, Michelle Lawless was in love with Leon Lamb, like head over heels. She wanted to be his girlfriend. She wanted to be his only girlfriend. She wanted to be exclusive with him. Leon and Michelle met in 1989 when they were both in high school, and they worked together at the Bonanza Steakhouse. They began dating in November of that year. Leon was a year ahead of Michelle in school, and when he graduated the following spring, he began working at Stan's Grocery in Sykeston, which is where he was still working at the time of Michelle's murder. Michelle thought that Leon was like the most attractive boy she'd ever met. Um, He was everything, man. uh, It's like very much young love, like huge big time crush. And they shared some interests in common, including taekwondo. So Michelle and her father, uh, Marvin, they did taekwondo together. Leon also was training in taekwondo. At some point, he was their instructor. They practiced together. You know, they shared that in common. And they first had sex in February of March of 1990. And Leon claims that over the next two years, Michelle told him she thought that she was pregnant or that she was pregnant several times, like definitely more than once. And Leon said he knew she was lying about it because he always wore a condom. And he believed that in a way she was either kind of testing him to see how serious he was about her, to see if he would like propose to her, you know, if he thought she was pregnant or she was trying to trick him into proposing But he didn't want to marry her, so he never did propose, even when, you know, she told him that she was pregnant. After a while, Leon felt he needed to pull back because he felt that Michelle was very immature and childish. And this really hurt Michelle's feelings because, like I said, she was very much in love with him. And to be fair, i was going to give my opinion. Leon Lamb, I'm sure a nice person now at this time. A little bit of a fuck boy, okay. Definitely, Whoa. yeah. Definitely messed with her. Definitely strung her along. Definitely played games with her. Always knew he didn't want commit. He didn't. He always knew he didn't want to commit. He always knew he didn't want to settle down. He always knew she wasn't the one, and he kept playing games with her. All right. So it, it's hard to see reading her diary. Um, And seeing the things that she says and like seeing the pattern, like knowing exactly what he was doing, playing games, manipulating, gaslighting is just really difficult. So – At the start of 1992, Leon and Michelle had been dating for about two years, and Michelle was very clear with her friends and her diary that she didn't feel Leon was giving her as much as she was giving him. She was really into him, but he had a clear fear of commitment, and he had a tendency to run hot and cold. So as soon as things would start getting close, as soon as things would start getting intimate, he would pull back, get distant, kind of ghost her. We all know somebody like this, ladies. We all know somebody like this. Leon told Michelle several times over the course of their relationship that he needed a break or he wanted some space from her. And they would go a few days without seeing each other, without talking. But like clockwork, they would always find their way back to each other to reconnect, which usually meant having sex. According to Michelle's diary, she and Leon started off 1992 strong. She went to his place on January 1st. They had some food, watched a movie, talked and had sex. And she wrote, quote, made me feel loved today and I'm really happy heart symbol. Great first day of 1992, end quote. On January 4th, Michelle told Leon that she was pregnant, and he told her that if she was, he didn't want the baby. On July 12th, Michelle went to Leon's home. They had a talk during which Leon once again told her he wanted to break up. They argued. Michelle became angry. She hit Leon and then she left, writing later in her diary that she wasn't sure if she wanted him back this time. But that was just a story she told herself. Because, of course, on July 19th, Michelle stopped by Leon's again to drop something off. And at that time, they had sex. But once again, after this, Leon went cold. And it doesn't seem like he and Michelle saw each other for an extended period of time, about six weeks, which was much longer than they'd ever kind of taken a break before. During this time, Michelle did see other men. She went on dates here and there, but it was never anything serious. And it seemed like she was doing it more to distract herself or to make Leon jealous than because seeing other people was what she genuinely wanted to be doing. She definitely did not want to be seeing other people. She wanted to be with Leon, but... (laughs) He didn't really give her another choice at that point. At the beginning of September, Leon and Michelle began to see each other again. Every so often, according to him, they would meet at his place and have sex a few times a week. On September 1st, they were together at Taekwondo. He asked her to come over afterwards. Michelle wrote in their diary that at this time, they had sex for the first time since July. She showed him her new tattoo. And she wrote in her diary, quote, He still loves me. I know. End quote. On September 7th, Michelle went to see Leon again when she was drunk. They talked and had sex, and afterwards she wrote in her diary that she loved him. The next day, Michelle went to Leon's again, and once again they talked and they had sex. But after they were finished, Leon said, you know, we can't we can't do this anymore. We should not be doing this anymore. And she later angrily wrote in her diary, quote, Why not? I will get him back somehow, end quote. On September 9th, Michelle heard from mutual friends that Leon had started seeing another girl or he had been seeing another girl. And this broke Michelle's heart, leading her to tell her diary, quote, He has hurt me so bad now. Called him when I got home. I wish I could die. I still love him. I have no idea why. End quote. On September 10th, Michelle went to Leon's to talk. And she tried to initiate sex, but he turned her down. And this rejection really affected Michelle negatively, causing her to write in her diary, I'm so mad, someone he doesn't know, over me, end quote. On September 11th, Michelle showed up at Leon's again. They argued. He told her to leave him alone. So she went home and she wrote in her diary that she would do just that. She was going to leave him alone. A few weeks passed after that, and any mention of Leon and Michelle's diary was marked by her anger and episodes of jealousy towards him and the new girl he was seeing, who... <laughs> ironically was named Stephanie. Don't don't hate on me for for what Stephanie was doing to Michelle. On September 21st, Michelle wrote that she'd seen Leon at the bowling alley. She dragged him out of the bowling alley. She yelled at him, they fought, she hit him again. Later that day, she saw Leon again at Rick's Deli and again they got into it yelling at each other, continuing the fight at Leon's place afterwards. But then on September 28th, Michelle was with her friends, Lelisha O'Dell and Chantal Kreider at the Cotton Carnival. They ran into Leon there, and Michelle left with him, going back to his place where they had sex. On October 15th, Leon asked Michelle for the keys to his trailer back, and she dropped them off, picking up a few of her possessions that she'd left at his place. But then on October 22nd, Michelle and Leon had sex again, and again on November 4th. Now, as we know, just a few days later on the night of her murder, Michelle and Leon were together again. But Leon told the police something he felt was different about Michelle that night. He said, quote, she asked me to let her spend the night or drive her home. She never did that before. End quote. As we know, Leon did not let Michelle spend the night and he did not drive her home because he's a fuck boy. And she ended up dead in her car on the side of the road. I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm just saying that when a girl that you've let on for two years and you've given her some sort of semblance to think that you care about her, right? Because you have to be letting her feel that you care about her. You don't, you're you not ready for a relationship. You're emotionally damaged. Somebody hurts you and you just can't get over it, but but you do care about her, okay? And if you were just a whole fixed person, everything would be fine. He, he led her to believe that he cared about her. And if you let her to believe that he cared about her and this girl that you've been having sex with and leading on to believe that you care about her tells you she's afraid or seems afraid and wants to spend the night or have you drive her home, you do it. You do it. Okay, you fuck boy. I'm sorry. I'm done.
2: What do you think? I mean, I got to be careful what I say here because I'm uh, completely aware of the uh, analytics, the demographics of our listener and viewership. And for those of you who don't know, it's like 95 percent women. So I'm severely outnumbered here. All I'll say in Leon's defense, there are some women out there who are um, fuck girls, too. Right does happen both ways see that are reaction there? right there
1: are there yes here
2: we go Are there here we go Are there
1: or do they become that way because y'all leave us no choice oh jesus okay so, okay you gotta so, play in the game or you're just gonna be sitting there waiting for people like leon lamb to come around and propose to you one day when it's never gonna happen All so,
2: right? so anyways i digress but i just want to put that out there for but the, you
1: agree that like the
2: seven men that are watching this episode
1: they know they know who he is. They oh, know.
2: Jesus. Okay.
1: You all know better than we do. You know the games y'all play. Come on, Why are you going to say y'all? Like, why? You... <laughs> Don't even start with me, man. Okay. So listen, do you agree, though, that like, he's like, oh, she seemed like scared and she'd never yeah. been like that before. Like, come on, dude. Come on. You, she's good enough to have sex with, but you can't make sure she gets home Okay.
2: So You're on dead? my list, on my list in my notebook, I have Leon Lamb Lam as a suspect. So I'm I, I'm I'm looking at him from oh, that. Oh,
1: Brenda Schwitz's notebook too that went missing. So
2: I have him. I have him. Um, you know, through my lens, I'm looking at him as a potential suspect. And me too, man. Y- you could look at a scenario here, and maybe you maybe there's maybe there's exculpatory evidence that proves that to, this not to be true. What I'm about to say, but you could say at this point in the story, he does decide to give Michelle a ride home. During the ride home. Their, their conversation escalates to an argument that becomes violent, which we know has happened in the past, per Michelle's diaries.
1: Yeah, but He's going to drive her home in her car? How's he going to get home?
2: Maybe he takes her car. And he's going to bring it back. I don't know. I'm just playing out a scenario here. Or maybe he's following her home. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying that maybe. at this point, maybe he's telling a partial truth, which sometimes offenders do, where it's like, hey, I was giving her a ride home. I was going to take her car, bring it back or whatever. And... During that drive home, she asked me if I still loved her or whatever. It, I say no, that this was a mistake. She hits me while I'm driving. I pull over. The argument escalates, and then there's an assault, and ultimately he kills her. So he's still a suspect on my list. But let's say for this, for for what I'm about to say now, that what he's saying is true, and she was scared. She wanted a ride home. He looked at it as oh, she's just trying to find another way to keep me involved and she wants me to, you know, she wants to stay here overnight with me. She's making an excuse. So he sends her on her way. What's well, it
1: gonna hurt her hurt you to let her spend the night? You said she was drunk
2: Mm-mm, when you, she you know, showed up. Isn't yes. that the
1: responsible thing to do just as no, a human
2: is. being? It is. I'm not and I'm not justifying his actions. I'm just saying he might have been looking at it like she was sober enough to get over over here. She's sober enough to get home and Freaking I don't want Leon and I don't want some emotions man. But Let's just say for this conversation. He would have been lucky.
1: T- he would have been lucky to be married to Michelle, honestly. Okay.
2: There you go. Leon. Thinking you he's thinking
1: he's something special. Like thinking he's something special. He can't be tied down. Ugh.
2: What I what I was It'd gonna say, me. what I was gonna say is he if everything's on the up and up, I would like to think that he has some serious regret about that night. Because I think what you said is absolutely true. If if he would have let her stay that night. Then more than likely, if if this is a scenario where she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it wasn't this premeditated thing where the individual who did this would have carried it out another night instead, uh, if she was with him at the home, more than likely this doesn't happen, and she's still with us today. So I'm sure that thought has crossed Leon's Damn, mind. Damn, Savage. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth. I mean, I'm sure that thought has crossed his mind. <laughs> yeah, where you know, I hope he, so. I would really hope you so. know because I don't think I don't think you can necessarily. Oh, this is going to sound so bad as I'm saying it out loud, but yeah, let's he was doing his thing. He was out there not being the most respectful to women and mm, that doesn't necessarily mean he's a bad person at his core. No. So, he was my, young. He's young, dumb, dumb, and you know what? Yeah. Full of something. And it's one Shit. of those things where <laughs> it's one of those things where he made some decisions as a young, you know, young kid that a young book are not necessarily the best things and doesn't mean that if he had to do it over again knowing what he knows now he wouldn't have let her stay that night and avoided this I mean obviously
1: but hindsight man
2: I know you just never know
1: you never know All right, let's take our last break of the episode and then we've got plenty more to talk about when we come back It, so by mid-September, Michelle had started seeing another man, which I don't know. He was 18. So can you call him a man? He's still a boy at that point. But this this 18-year-old was named Lyle Day. He lived with his parents outside of Sykeston, and something happened to him at the start of his senior year of high school. In September of 1991, Lyle had been in a very bad car accident after he had driven into a telephone pole, and this left him in a coma for a month. Now, after he came out of the coma, people said Lyle was different, Uh, He was a bit slower. He was more moody, more volatile. He walked with a limp. He just seemed not to be the same. And Lyle would not end up graduating from high school due to his accident. And at the time of Michelle's murder, he was receiving unemployment and Social Security disability checks while he took GED classes and hung around the TNT tanning salon in Sykeston, where he didn't officially work. But I guess he would help out around the shop in exchange for free tanning. Um (laughs) As a little spoiler, once again, we're gonna get deeper into this, but this TNT tanning salon also kind of rumored to be involved with drugs. So, um, and he would be in there, he'd like sweep, mop, wipe the beds down, stuff like that. I think it was just something to do when he wasn't, you know, doing his GED classes. It was just someplace to be. One day in October, Lyle walked from the tanning salon to the bowling alley to get a drink, and it was there that he met Michelle Lawless the two began chatting he gave her a business card for the TNT tanning salon he was like come in you know get a membership become a customer which she did and after that michelle began going to the salon regularly and she also became friends with the owners of the TNT tanning salon andy and tammy stone um so andy stone would later tell police that you know michelle definitely had like a crush on lyle day And Michelle actually became really close to Andy's wife, Tammy. Tammy would sometimes go to church with her and Michelle would, um, you know, hang out at the salon too to talk to Tammy, but maybe also to see Lyle. The first mention of Lyle Day in Michelle's diary happened on September 15th. This was four days after Michelle had written in her diary that she would respect Leon Lamb's wishes and leave him alone, which, of course, we know that she didn't. You know, they ended up hooking up a couple of times after that. So Michelle was at a motel party with some of her coworkers from Shoney's, and she wrote that Lyle had walked her to her car after the party and kissed her. On September 20th, Michelle was out with some friends cruising when she spotted Lyle in the Malco parking lot in Sykeston, and that night he kissed her again. The next night, she was cruising around Sykeston when she ran into Lyle again, and she got into his vehicle with him, and they cruised around together, and this led to another kiss. On October 2nd, Michelle went riding around with her friend Lelisha O'Dell and Lyle Day. She said they had a great time running through a field. She lost her shoes and Lelisha spent the night at her house. On October 4th, Lyle Day told Michelle that he'd heard her ex or her situationship, Leon, was going around telling people that he thought Michelle was just a little hoe and he'd been using her for sex. So the next day, Michelle confronted Leon about this. He denied it. And for a few days, she was actually angry with Lyle for spreading false rumors, even though Leon Lamb probably did be saying that. And I don't know why she's believing him when he says he didn't. But anyways, she was angry with Lyle for these rumors and she didn't have any contact with him for a few days. But by October 9th, it appeared she had forgiven him and Michelle and Lyle were back in contact and speaking to each other or seeing each other regularly. Everything seemed to be going well until October 15th, when they got into an argument after Lyle allegedly threw a cigarette at her. But on October 16th, Michelle was with Lyle at that trailer that she and Alicia had rented for like two weeks, and they had sex for the first time. On October 17th, Michelle was riding around with her friends, Vince Howard and Eric Shanks, and during that time she got drunk— And when she was dropped back off at her car in the parking lot, she passed out behind the wheel with her motor running. Now, Lyle Day happened to be parked nearby. And when he returned to his vehicle, he saw Michelle in her car. He woke her up. He got her into his truck and brought her home, which makes him 10 times the gentleman that Leon Lamb ever was. And later, Michelle wrote in her diary, I really like him. On October 22nd, Michelle talked to Lyle and she said that he hurt her feelings and she didn't specifically say what he had hurt her feelings about. But that night she drove around with Lalisha and Chantel before ending up at Leon Lamb's, her situationship and she had sex with Leon that night. On October 23rd, she talked to Lyle again, and on the night of October 24th, he spent the night with her at her trailer. On October 25th, Michelle and Lyle drove around in his truck, and they talked, and again, she wrote in her diary that she really liked him. On October 31st, Michelle went to a Halloween party with Lelisha and Chantel. This party will come back up several times throughout this case, and afterwards, um, Michelle... And her friends rode around looking for Lyle, but they couldn't find him. And it was really just Michelle and Chantelle looking for Lyle that night, and they couldn't find him. On November 1st, Lyle went to Michelle's house after she got home from church. They took a drive, and during this drive, she sort of confessed her feelings for him. Um, she didn't, she was just kind of like, I'm really into you. You know, I like you, and they shared a kiss. And she said Lyle kissed her hand. And, um, you know, obviously that was a big deal for her. She was feeling very romantic. On November 2nd, Michelle told Lyle that she didn't just like him. She was in love with him. But he didn't respond in the way that she wanted him to. According to her diary, Lyle sort of just shrugged this off and ignored it. On November 3rd, Michelle wrote in her diary that she and Chantel had been riding around. They chopped down a sign. They fell in a ditch, stole some cotton, had a lot of fun. And she again wrote about how much she liked Lyle. But then on November 4th, Michelle wrote that she talked to Lyle, but he was still being a butt. So she didn't tell him that she'd had sex with Leon Lamb that day. On November 5th, Michelle wrote in her diary that she'd seen Lyle, but she didn't give any details. Now, the details of what would happen that day would later be filled in by Lyle Day himself. So Deputy Jerry Allen interviewed Lyle Day on November 8th, and Lyle said that he and Michelle had been seeing each other for about a month, but he'd been clear with her from the beginning that he never wanted anything serious, that it was just sex. Lyle said that on November 5th, he and Michelle had been driving around in his truck when she told him that she was pregnant, and he became upset. And he asked her, you know, am I? are you sure that I'm the father? And if if I am, like, I will pay for for you to have an abortion. Because I'm not ready to have a kid. I'm 18 freaking years old, right? And Michelle became very angry at this suggestion. She retorted that she would not be having an abortion, and then she jumped out of his truck and started walking. Lyle said that he drove around for a bit trying to find her, which he eventually did in the parking lot of the TNT tanning salon. Now, two other men, Kevin Garrett and Joey Adams, they'd picked Michelle up when they saw her walking on the road. They said she didn't have a coat on, She looked upset, so they offered to give her a ride back to her car. And Kevin Garrett would later tell the police that Michelle had told them during the drive to the tanning salon that she was angry with her boyfriend because he had tried to hit her and he told her to get an abortion. When Lyle Day showed up in the parking lot, he spoke to Kevin Garrett. And Kevin Garrett alleges that Lyle said, quote, I hate her, but I want to make sure she got back to her car, end quote. When it came to Lyle Day... Not many people in Michelle's life were big fans of him. Leon Lamb had told the police that he knew Lyle did drugs and Lyle hadn't been the same since his accident. And Leon thought that Lyle could have killed Michelle if she had told him she was pregnant. Michelle's friends, Lelisha and Chantel, also did not like Lyle and they too felt that he could have killed her. They told the police that Michelle had told Lyle she was pregnant just a few days before her murder and Michelle had told them that Lyle had been very angry about this news. However, many friends of Lyle's said they didn't really buy this motive. Lyle's friend Daryl Best would tell police that at least two other girls had already made claims to Lyle that they'd been pregnant. These were false claims and these girls were still alive. On November 13th, Lyle's father hired a lawyer for his son. And Sheriff Farrell and Deputy Schwitz talked to Lyle again at his lawyer's office, at which time they were able to get his alibi for the night of Michelle's murder. Lyle said that he'd been with his friend, Ray Ring, all that day and night, and they'd gone to a party at Gene Tidwell's house in Matthews, Missouri, about a 24-minute drive south of the murder scene. A party that, by the way, Mark Abbott was not at, (laughs) you know, so he said he met him at a party and the police officer who took his statement said he understood the party was that night, but nobody saw Mark Abbott at this party. Lyle said they'd arrived there at the party between 10 and 10:15 10, p.m. and then they'd left around 12:30 a.m. because they'd driven his friend Gene Haynes' sister's car and she'd insisted that they have it back by 1 a.m. Lyle said that when they got back to Gene's house, he did not go inside but he sat in his truck warming it up for about 10 or 15 minutes before driving home. And according to Gene's sister Teresa Hayes, she looked at the VCR clock when her brother got home that night and she said the time was about 1:05 a.m. She also. Said Said that her brother Gene came to the door around 1 15 a.m. and told her that Lyle was there, but he was leaving. So, you know, that kind of does give Lyle an alibi that he's at Gene Hayes' house at one one fifteen at the time that you know Michelle would have been being murdered and not close by. So it could've it would have made it impossible for him to basically be there at the site of her murder.
2: You see how that works? You see how that happens? Yeah. What <laughs> you, you end up having other people who can confirm your story. You give it on your first attempt. This is what it is. You have mm-hmm. the times, and it just it just makes sense, and it sounds true mm-hmm. because it is. And
1: you've got multiple people who back multiple that
2: up. people, including a someone inside the home who mm-hmm. has no skin in the game to lie for you. Barely knows you from what it looks like. You know, just obviously has. Uh, Is aware of who you are. Knows you
1: through her brother. But she said she was like, "Yeah, I let them borrow my car because they they had more than one person and they wanted to all go together." She said, and I was really worried that they were going to wreck it. So like, I was vigilant. I was sitting there on the couch waiting for them to get home. And so when when I when I heard my brother Gene come in, I looked at the the clock because I told them to have it back by one. So. I, I looked at the clock to make sure that they had followed that 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 rule
2: yeah and before anybody comes up to the comments like oh well they could all be of course of course they could have like it's all better than conspired. freaking Mark
1: Abbott has man or it's a better lot, than a lot of, Leon lamb
2: yeah there's a, there's people who are better for it but uh you also have to look at motive and things things of that nature obviously like what what would be the reasoning behind this you can make the argument that you know, as some has said have said, he tells her she tells him she, he's pregnant and it goes a little bit overboard. But you also have to consider the fact that right before this, she would have been with Leon. And so is is her. And it seems like they had a good time, right? Like they had sex and they they ended on a, a fairly good note, even though I'm right she,
1: before her murder, you mean?
2: Yes. Right yeah. before her murder, they were on good terms, although she wanted to stay the night. Mm-hmm. And Leon didn't want her to. It doesn't seem like they were on they, having like an argument. So they, they were on they,
1: the same terms they always same were Same terms on. they've always been on. So yeah. would
2: she have more than likely met up with Lyle right after that? That doesn't seem.
1: There would have been no time for that. Right. Yeah. And it
2: doesn't seem like Lyle would have been the type based on his lack of caring for her where he would have been upset by the idea that she was with Leon.
1: And you know what else I think? I think that Lyle knew that she was having sex with. Leon oh, of course still. he did. Right, because <laughs> yeah, remember, like she, she that one time she was like, oh, um, she'd had sex with Leon earlier that day, and then she talked to Lyle on the phone, and she said, oh, he was still being like a jerk, so she chose not to tell him. Right, about Leon, which makes me feel like maybe in the past when she'd been with Leon, she had told him.
2: Yeah, I'm sure Leon and Lyle both knew about each other.
1: Yeah, that's why they're over here talking shit about each other and trying to make each yeah. other look bad I to feel, her. I'm pretty,
2: I'm, I feel confident in saying because they all kind of know each other, frequent the same circles, they were at minimum were aware of each other.
1: So remember that Mark Abbott had told Officer Bobby Wooten that it was Ray Ring he'd seen in the Cut Mart parking lot the night of Michelle's murder. And he told Wooten this on November 18th, which is why on November 19th, Sheriff Bill Farrell had Ray Ring come into the sheriff's office to be questioned. Ray Ring told the sheriff that he knew who Michelle was just because he knew her through his friend Lyle Day, but he never actually talked to her. Ring said that the last time he'd been in Benton had been a few months prior when he'd attended a party at the trailer of John Worley. Now, this was the Halloween party that Michelle had also been at with her friends, Lelisha and Chantelle, And Michelle had written about this party in her diary saying, quote, left and came back, drank and flirted and stuff. Todd Mayberry liked me. When we left, kissed almost everyone. Took Lalisha home, and Chantelle and I snuck out and went to McDonald's and cruised. Couldn't find Lyle, so I went home to Chantelle's. Now, when asked about Mark Abbott, Ray was like, Yeah, Mark Abbott, I do know. He stated, quote, Mark Abbott is a racist. I dated one of his ex girlfriends a few times, Laura Bailey. She told me he said he would kill any black man who dated a white girl and any girlfriend of his who dated a black man. He had some real asshole friends. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they killed somebody. You might want to look at Kevin Williams and Gary Amson They all smoke marijuana, get drunk, and then want to fight. End quote. Now, when asked about Lyle Day's alibi, Ray Ring said that yes, he and Lyle were good friends and that they'd been together that night, and Lyle had also told him about Michelle's pregnancy claims, but Lyle had also told him about two or three other girls who'd also tried to pull the same trick, and once again, all of them were still alive and walking around. Ray said that on the night of Michelle's murder, he, Lyle, and their friend Gene Haynes took Gene's sister's car to Gene Tidwell's party. They left the party, and then they went to Hardy's in Sykeston. But then Ray didn't want to go back to the party, and Gene's sister's car had to be back by 1 a.m., so he started walking home while Lyle and Jean left. And then two people that Ray knew from the Little Caesars that he worked at, they stopped and gave him a ride home to his apartment. And Ray said his roommate, Larry Coote, was home when he arrived, and Larry could verify that he'd gotten to their apartment and stayed there the rest of the night, which Larry did. He was not hanging out in the parking lot of the Mart in a white car, as Mark Abbott had alleged. So another name would be mentioned a few times in Michelle's diary. Someone named Mark, who Michelle wrote about a handful of times, but never gave a last name. Someone who shared that name would be interviewed by the Scott County Sheriff's Office again on November 23rd. This person would be Mark Abbott, and once again, he would add to and modify his version of the events of the night that Michelle Lawless was found on the side of the road with three bullets inside of her. And that is what we're going to talk about when we pick up next week.
2: So, are are you are are we to believe that the the Mark that's we're talking about in Michelle's diary is Mark Abbott?
1: I don't know. I'm going to give you an argument for why he could be.
2: Okay, because as just to refresh everybody, because it hasn't been since episode one, uh, we're supposed to be under the understanding based on the reenacted interview. That Mark Abbott didn't know Michelle Lawless. I mean, he might have seen her somewhere, but he didn't. Mark
1: claimed he didn't know Michelle. He didn't know her, exactly.
2: Mm -hmm. Because he, to the point where he was like, oh, was there something wrong with her head? Like, he was very, like, oblivious to who Michelle Lawless was.
1: Yeah, he tried to act oblivious about it for sure.
2: And that, and so there's a couple things to recap here. Was she
1: right in the head or something? Yes.
2: Something along those lines. Like, very, like, he doesn't know who this woman is. uh, And when the detective mentioned, she w- whose daughter she was. Marvin and-
1: Lawless's daughter. Yeah. yeah. He-,
2: he didn't really seem to be like, oh yeah, I know who she yeah. is. That's right. So could have a couple issues here for episode number three. First off, Ray Ring appears to have a very solid alibi. And uh, again, when you have someone who's telling the truth, it's not always the case, but in many situations when they tell you something, there will be multiple people or multiple cameras or something that will confirm their story because it's just the truth and they'll they'll tell you one time one time only they won't hesitate there won't be any deviations in the story they won't come back and redact and re- and rechange and mm-hmm. they'll just tell you the story because that's what they remember and then you'll be able to as the investigator go out there and pretty easily confirm it through impartial witnesses that's what usually happens now on the other side of the coin let's get back to ray ring as far as how it relates to mark abbott because mark abbott as you said uh, allegedly, went to a payphone right after this incident. After finding Michelle, with the intent on calling nine one one. Stop me if I'm wrong. on Any of this is just what I've written down. And as he's there, Ray Ring pulls up on him.
1: And allegedly, yeah.
2: allegedly, and he gives a really weird story about it. As as and it basically was, in my opinion, his reasoning why he didn't call law enforcement from the payphone. Right, he, you know that would have been the natural thing to do. You see someone they're injured, you want to get law enforcement out there immediately to render assistance. You go to a pay phone, you call 911. But his, his argument is that, hey, listen, my defense is that I did plan on doing the right thing, the most commonsensical thing. However, somebody rolled up on me, scared me and caused mm-hmm. me to not do it then and to wait till I went to the actual station in person and do it, which by that point, it's going to be probably too late for this woman if she is still even alive. You're not a you're not a you trained. I
1: mean, the sheriff's office is like right there, dude. It's like a mile down the road off the exit. You know? Yeah, but like, he didn't go right there. No, he didn't. So,
2: so that's that. That's what I'm saying. So for someone who is an innocent part or innocent bystander, if you want to render assistance to this girl. You, you, by the way, here's another angle. If I if I pull up and I don't think I'm some freaking hero. If I pull up and there's a girl that's severely injured, bleeding from her head or whatever, I'm getting her out of the car. I'm throwing her in my truck and I'm bringing her to the nearest hospital. I'm not a doctor. I don't know if she's alive or not. I'm going to bring her somewhere because I'm going to be able to get her there faster than an ambulance responding to the scene. That's what I'm doing. But at minimum, because of the times you didn't have a cell phone, you go to the nearest payphone, you make that call, you get someone out there immediately and you go back to the crime scene. You go back to the scene and check on this girl again. You don't leave her out there by herself. You don't just take off and go, hey, by the way... A little while ago, I was out there. I saw a girl. She's bleeding all over the place. She's by herself. I just wanted to make you aware of it. And by the way, I happen to see some other people out there, too, that, you know, I don't know if they're connected or not. But, yeah, you may want to look into that. Just saying. Um, but without getting off, I get so much going through my head right now. But without, without going too far off that way, one big thing that that Mark Abbott's hanging his hat on is he makes the fatal mistake. And we've talked about this over the years of Crime Weekly. Usually individuals will give you just enough and it's usually if it's a lie it's just usually them involved because there's no way to discredit what they're saying. Mark Abbott made a mistake here. Mark Abbott made a huge mistake because he involved someone in his and his lie, let's just call it what it is, in his lie who was not on team Mark Abbott and was not in on the lie
1: and who had an alibi.
2: And who had an alibi but even even if he had an alibi for you know just being in the area, Mark wouldn't have known that, right? But what Mark didn't also know is that they were going to go speak to him, and Ray Ring was going to tell him the truth and say, I didn't see Why this kid. Why would
1: he not think that they would go speak to him?
2: I don't know. I, I can, as I'm sitting here, as you were saying it, and you're like, oh, he came back and said a name. And I was saying to myself before you got to this point in the story— Please tell me that the police went and talked to him. Please tell me that Ray the Ring has been interviewed. The next day,
1: yeah, the next but day. Y-
2: there have been stories where you tell me about law enforcement sure. and they don't follow up. So I thought that's where this was going. But knowing that, yeah, yeah, I mean he he made a fatal mistake for someone who is maybe not telling the truth and that's involving people in your your web of lies that aren't in on the lie. That that aren't or don't already know what to say if asked. And so I don't know what he was thinking in that. I don't know what the f- I don't know what he was thinking. Yeah. I really don't. I and it, and it's it's not I looking feel like, good like for It's Mark.
1: just like to muddy the waters kind of, like to be confusing, to be purposely confusing so that law enforcement is like running around in circles talking to people that have nothing to do with anything instead of looking at him.
2: Yeah, he's just throwing shit at the wall and seeing right. what sticks. Hey, yeah. if I throw out enough names out there, they're just going they're not going to be able to to rule out everyone. Okay, so to bring this back to the beginning of the episode, as far as what I had the question I had posed at the beginning of the episode, as far as how does Michelle end up where she is at that time? And you had alluded to the idea that maybe this person knew she would be there. And I know we really didn't get into it a lot tonight as far as Mark Abbott. And I know we're going to get into it next week where the mm-hmm. potential that he did know who she was and that maybe he had some type of indication that she was going to be on her way home that evening around that time. Um so it's kind of hard for me to say that I've changed my opinion in this episode cuz I don't know all the specifics yet. So I'm going to go into episode 3 sticking with what I originally said, but I'm going to I'm going to modify it slightly by saying, "Hey, you're going to
1: modify it slightly like slightly. A Mark Abbott's story?"
2: Yeah, like Mark Abbott and say maybe there's a world there's another option here where Maybe if Mark Abbott is the guy, he's not driving down the road and randomly sees a car that he doesn't recognize or a woman he doesn't know and pulls over to see what the situation is. But instead, he sees a girl that he is familiar with in a car that he recognizes and pulls over to see what the deal is. Like I still think that there's a very strong possibility Michelle pulled over on her own because she had to for some reason or as you alluded to, he's driving alongside her they they make eye contact they wave at each other she they, thinks
1: he's a a benign yeah, person yeah she knows him she yeah. knows
2: of him and they both pull over to have a quick conversation there's there's an there's an option for that there i have to know more about their relationship because it sounds like you're not even certain that the mark in the diary is mark abbott so I'll be. In, I wish we were covering that tonight. I'd be. I'd like to know about that. But um, thanks for leaving us on that cliffhanger. Appreciate you. But way down in the comments, where are you guys thinking at this point? It's, you know, for me and Stephanie, you know our roles in this, right? Like you are someone who does the whole script. You know where the story's going. You know what's to come. And so, in in fairness to you, it's hard to. Start off objectively when you already have all the information. You've already developed your opinion. You're trying to be as objective as you can for me and for everybody else. Whereas we're coming into this blind for the most, for the most part, for most of us. And I try to start off almost in a way trying to discredit what I know you think. Yeah. I, and that's what you should do. As a team, I should try to poke holes in your theory.
1: Yeah, that's our dynamic for sure.
2: It's that it, vice versa, right? Always. That should, that should be what it is, and that's what a good team would do. Even in a, in a detective division, you sit around. Someone throws out a theory. Someone throws out a suspect, and and what they think happened. And your partners should be there to try and discredit what you advocate. think. Play yeah. devil's advocate. Play devil's advocate. because if 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 it is what it is, then that that means it's not the guy, and you move on to the next one. So with this one, we hear Mark the margin. <laughs> Uh, That I had initially with, hey, listen, this could be a guy who rolled up and, you know, just wrong place, wrong time and didn't make the right decisions afterwards. With everything else that we, we now have in play here, in addition to what we had in episode one, now we have him singling out someone specifically. And that person coming in and telling law enforcement indirectly, he's lying to you. I didn't see him that night. So... Why would Mark Abbott do that? How could he misidentify this person? He wouldn't. He knows this person personally. So it's a, it's a flat out lie. And so then the question becomes very simply, why is Mark Abbott doing this? Why is he doing so much? And, and I mean, you're, you can you can weigh in the comments down below why you think he's going to such lengths to continuously make himself look worse and worse. What is he trying to accomplish?
1: I once again, the only thing that I could think of is he's trying to distract. He's trying to confuse. That's why he's going to a different police station to give this report. Like if there's enough distraction, if there's enough like random offshoots, you know, because now they got to bring Ray Ring in regardless of what what they think they got to bring Ray Ring in. And there's a chance that Ray doesn't have an alibi. There's a chance that maybe he is in the area. And now they're pursuing this lead. You know, like you said, he's throwing stuff at the wall. See what sticks. And then he could just later go back and be like, oh, you know what? I thought it was Ray, but it was dark. And I was really scared. And now I realize that it wasn't, you know, and he can just play dumb. He just freaking play dumb about it and be like, oh, I wasn't. I didn't lie. I I just I was mistaken. No, you lied you lied. You lied. In in our opinion allegedly.
2: Well, I mean, it's not even our opinion if that's what happened. If what you're if where you're getting this information from is is accurate, where is this information the source coming from? What do you mean? This this particular piece of information as far as Mark Abbott saying, "Hey guys, I remember who that person was that frightened me that night which caused me not to make the 911 call. It was Ray Ring." Where yes. is that information coming from?
1: Officer Bobby Wooten's police report.
2: There you go. That's so. So there you go. That that
1: that sheriff Bill Farrell and Brenda Schwitz conveniently didn't give to Josh Kaiser's attorney.
2: Right, and that and that. So that's something right there. And then you have obviously Ray Ring coming in giving his statement. Yeah, and and probably not even knowing that he's discrediting. If if the investigator is good, not even knowing that he's discrediting
1: Mark Abbott. Mark
2: Abbott's statement. Just he's there to protect himself by giving his alibi, which indirectly discredits Mark Abbott's alibi or his story. That's the point, right? It's not malicious. He's not coming in here and lying to... Because, I mean, you could argue if Ray Ring is the guy, he would say, I didn't see Mark Abbott that night. What's he talking about? I wasn't in that area at all, right? That he's involved. But as you said in the episode, we have multiple people confirming that Ray Ring was, in fact, where he said he was. So yes. for me, mm-hmm. where I leave this episode, you know, I got five people on my list. Uh, Leon Lamb... He's still on my list. He doesn't have a solid alibi. I'm kind of with I'm you on
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't Just have a. Sol- he's not my favorite
2: person. Nope. Uh, and I'm. He doesn't have a solid alibi. He was the last person with her to see her alive. He's automatically on the list for that he he he's
1: they'd they'd been seen fighting, arguing that's right I mean, tumultuous physically, relationship physically fighting like she'd hit him, and I don't think he ever hit her back, but there were times where he would shove her, you know, to stop her so there, it's getting physical
2: right yeah I'm who's the you. only person who's the last who's the only person to say that she left his house and she was alive <laughs> Uh, Leon lamb that's right so yeah. Leon you're still on the list bud person like, of interest
1: literally within 15 20 minutes of when
2: not good right she would be
1: dead yeah not I agree. good
2: yeah. not good so you can't take him off the list we can't be impartial and say oh you know what I think I, I believe him um obviously Mark Abbott self-explanatory Lyle day he's got a pretty solid alibi I got him off I my agree. list. Yeah. I've checked him off Ray ring I've checked him off and now you've brought into two other players into the you know into the fold here uh kevin williams and and gary Armsen. Armson, am i saying that right yeah the one um what's his name mark's friends yeah yeah I, and i don't know how Armsin. they tie into this but i know you well kevin enough to williams know you does yeah yeah i know you well enough to know you ain't bringing up no names just to, for the hell of it there's a reason you're foreshadowing so they're on my list now yeah. so that's you know we're down to, in the and you have to always include in every investigation just throw matt abbott on that list too just you know
1: Okay. Or shits and giggles. Well,
2: to, it's so weird, but I kind of include Mark and Matt as the same the person. Same person.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know because
2: they've they've done that to themselves. So I do include both of them. By the way, because we don't know at all Who's that Mark who? Abbott was the one at the was the one that quote unquote found her at all that night. Um, he could be putting himself in the forefront because he wasn't involved. For all we know, maybe he's protecting his brother. And then I also have that box which I have on every case, the unknown person, right? The random stranger the person who's walking around with nefarious intentions. We talked about Crime Weekly News this week with uh, BTK, and we also mentioned Rex Hewerman. You know, There's obviously some brief interaction with his victims, but it's not a lot. There doesn't always have to be this extensive history. It could just be a situation of wrong place, wrong time, where a bad person sees someone unsuspecting by themselves. In, a, in a, a tough location. Yeah, but
1: don't you think there'd be some sort of robbery, sexual no. assault? Doesn't no, no, just you
2: want to murder somebody,
1: shoot them execution style three times in the back for no reason, just you just want to kill a girl?
2: It could be a situation just like Delphi. I know there's still other things we don't know about Delphi yet, but I'm just throwing it out there where you have a situation where this guy pulls over because he sees a young girl. Get out of her car to go pee in, on the side of the off-ramp or whatever.
1: Why is she peeing on the side of the off-ramp? Her house is a mile down the street.
2: You got to go. You got Let me ask you this.
1: She's a waitress, dude. Get, how, trust me, she can hold her pee. Okay. What I've been sitting here talking to you for over an hour having to pee.
2: What do you What do you, so I'm just trying to see how I can get her out of the car by herself because I do think it's more of a stretch. Even if it was someone she knew, a guy she knew, why wouldn't they, why would they meet on an off ramp? Why wouldn't they go to a parking lot? Why wouldn't they meet right, check somewhere? check this out. Check this out. Please, enlighten me. It's like, what, one o'clock in the morning? Right. She just left Leon. She just had sex.
1: You got more than one person involved, okay?
2: You're saying the suspect, there's more than one person involved.
1: Yeah. Okay, i More than I'm one person you. involved in her attack, which I think law enforcement agrees with that. And I also think that you probably can agree
2: with that too. That there's more than one person? Yes. Why do, we, why do we automatically agree to that? Just we do. We do? There's
1: more than one person involved. Law enforcement believes that there's more than one person involved. They said two or three. But why do they think that? Well, they don't really say. That's but what I'm saying. They're not going to always say why. Because one weapons. person
2: could have carried this out. They had a gun. There's yes, n-
1: but I, 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 they don't think that that's what
2: happened. I'll stop interrupting. You play. Give me the scenario. So where let's they get say the, the scenario
1: is that there's more than one person involved. Okay. Three people. You've got one car on that overpass, right? And they can see the highway. Yep. And then you've got another, maybe two people in another vehicle down by the exit waiting. Now, the car on the overpass sees Michelle approaching, flashes their lights. Now, the car that's waiting pulls and, and blocks the exit lane with their vehicle. She doesn't have a choice now but to stop.
2: Is that the end of your story? Yeah. Why?
1: Because they're waiting for
2: her. But why? Who?
1: Well, I can't talk about that right now.
2: Okay. Because that's... And maybe we can... We're getting because, into another... okay,
1: so let's say it's Mark Abbott. Okay. You're making me, like, foreshadow even more than I want to because I don't even... I can't even talk about, like, the supporting evidence of... Okay, so let's say that Mark Abbott is the Mark in Michelle's diary, right? Okay. And Mark and Michelle... Maybe they're in a, a relationship of some sort.
2: With you. Okay.
1: Okay. And maybe she tells him she's pregnant, like she's done before.
2: Yep. Not, maybe not that's hard to a believe. Motive.
1: Maybe that's a motive to kill her, right? Because not only does Mark Abbott have like a wife, but he's got a girlfriend and a bunch well, of other Why are you chicks. killing
2: her on the side of a highway? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Because and why are you involving other people? You could meet her at a house and you could say. Because
1: these are his friends involved with his drug shit, man. It's not like yeah. they don't got shit on each other anyways. And they think they're freaking good fellas over here.
2: How does he know she's going to be coming off that on ramp or off that off ramp at that time? How does he know where she is?
1: Because, because of what she was doing, or er- like what she was doing earlier. So and he knew she would be coming home around this time. Her curfew. And she, he knew
2: she would be coming from that direction.
1: Her cur. Yes. So, um, Marvin, like Marvin Law. Marvin Lawless. Her father late would later say, like Michelle ha- did have a curfew, but we didn't really enforce it too much. She would always be home by one a.m. She would always be home by one a.m. And she would always come into our room, even if we were sleeping, to let us know that she was home. Always be home by one. So. They know she's always home by one, right? So she's got to be coming around that time. There's nothing, there's no reason. She hung out in Cape, Cape, Garrett Gerard, Garrido whatever, um, Sykeston, those areas. She had, a, as we can see from her diary, she had habits. She hung out with the same people. She went cruising in the same areas. So they would know she'd be coming from that direction. They're waiting for her. Now, was it because she told Mark she was pregnant or because she found out about his drug stuff and she threatened to expose them? She, you know, said she was going to tell somebody. So there's reasons why somebody might want to kill her in a way that I would say is very mob like is very kind of like three shots to the back you know, like a very quick, like boom, boom. Like if you if you know how the mafia does stuff, like this is how they do it. They don't like take you somewhere. Usually, they're just gonna find you wherever you are. Quick, take you out and and leave. Like they were never there. They're ghosts. And it, I had the feeling that these boys kind of felt like they were like in, in the in the mafia. Like they were in this organized crime syndicate, running things, making a lot of money, making a lot of moves, bragging about it, getting drunk all the time, talking shit. And so there's reasons that they, they might want her dead. So and, and we're gonna speculate on on those motives later. But I believe if more than one person was involved, there's somebody on that overpass because a witness did see what they thought was a white Ford escort on that overpass around like 1230, I believe. And if that car sitting there waiting, what are they waiting for? Well, they might be waiting for a certain vehicle that they know to be Michelle's to drive up. Now they notify the people who are at that exit waiting. Those people pull up across the exit. She can't. What is she going to do? Go around them. She can't go around them. There's guardrails.
2: So without making this another hour episode, I'll say two comments on that where I feel like there's holes in that story. But I, this is without me and you going too deep into it because you have a lot more. I can tell. Two issues I have with it just on the surface of you explaining it. One, if I'm to believe that this is some type of hit and they're they're blocking her in, this is what I'm doing. I'm blocking her in. I'm walking up to the car. Hey, I just want to stop you for a second. As soon as she looks at me, I'm pulling the gun out. I'm shooting her three times. I'm walking away. There's evidence that she or, was. Or
1: she pulls up, sees it's Mark Abbott. Oh, shit. I'm in trouble. Gets out of her car, starts running, and they've got to pursue her.
2: So why not just shoot her right there? Why are they dragging her? Why are they getting her back to the car? I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? I feel like she, that's why I'm, that's my holdup. And I think, I don't know if you agree with me or not. I don't know because maybe initially they just,
1: maybe initially they just wanted to scare her. Like Mm. we kind of talked about last week, but now they're like hitting her. her as they're pulling her back to the car. They get her in there. Maybe she's kind of like unconscious from getting hit in the head so much. And they're like, oh shit, we can't leave her like this. Now we're really in trouble because this isn't gonna scare her. This is gonna cause her to want to go to law enforcement more. She wakes up and she's been freaking beaten over the head by us. She's going to the police, no doubt. We can't yep. even scare her now because she's unconscious. Well, you know, <laughs> like, so we can't even tell her anything. So maybe they're just like, All right, let's let's get this over with. Let's just do it. I don't know.
2: The other issue. If we're to believe this is premeditated and it's not always the case, but I think more likely than not, and you've researched a lot of cases, I've worked cases and I've I've researched a lot of cases. When you have a level of premeditation for the act itself, normally there's some type of plan as well for after the fact alibis, you know, how you're going to carry it out, whether you're going to ingrain yourself at all. It's not, it's not the usual practice. For a premeditated murder unless the person is directly connected to this individual, a wife, a husband, you know, someone that they can't avoid the fact that they're connected for them to ingrain themselves in the investigation voluntarily. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me which you've painted a picture of of over the last two episodes that Mark did not prepare for the after the fact if Mm -hmm. he if he intended on doing this. It was very sloppy, which is what we just left off on with Ray Ring. There was no premeditation as far as the alibi after the fact, if it was predetermined as to what he was going to do or what they were going to do. To me, if Mark's your guy, this was not what he intended to happen that night. He he didn't even know if he was going to run into her and something went down. It was sloppy. There, it appears to be brutal. There was an incident outside the vehicle then it seems as if she tried to get back to the vehicle and that's when it went down. It happened in a, in, in a moment's notice. So for me, I'm, I know people are probably coming at me in the comments, or not coming at me, but I am still under the impression and I can't tell you why. Maybe she did say she was drunk to Leon. There was some reason that I may, we may never know that she was already out of that car when her offenders or offender approached her. And I'm not even convinced it was multiple people, but I I that you know, I reserve judgment as we as you give me more information. Crazy case. And I, I will know. say after 2 episodes, head still in a pretzel. Oh yeah. Like this one's tough. Mhm. This one's tough. The why, the how, we don't really have there's a lot up for debate.
1: I know. I know, but I hope things get clearer as we go through.
2: I feel, I know this is hard for you and I'm very proud of you right now because you just want to go, you know what? F it. Let's do the next part right now. Let's do it live. And and and, and I know you want to and I appreciate you reserving that and just saving it. But th- I feel like a lot of people probably have similar questions to me. I feel like- Dude, I the most part- have questions, man. Like lots of them. Right. And I like the idea that you're thinking differently than me because maybe as we go, I'll feel more like you. I mean, you know the whole story. But I am really interested to see this week's everyone weigh in on this one because maybe maybe it's going to be an overall consensus where they're like no listen I I don't agree that she would have gotten out of the car she was so close to home like Stephanie said she would have just tried to make it I guess the only argument because I've been there I think we've all been there you know you might try to hold hold throwing up until you get to your house but when you got to throw up you got to throw up especially if you've been drinking too much and I could see a situation but I the hold P pee. pee. I'll give you that, especially if you're that close to home. I'll give you that, unless she had been holding it since she left Leon's home and it just was too much. But I'm just trying to play different scenarios, but maybe vomit is more likely she gets out of the car and she's over there, you know, and I will also say this, they've told us a lot about the crime scene. Have they told us everything? I mean, I would like to think they did. I don't
1: think so. Probably not.
2: I would like to think they did because someone was charged with the crime and and, and, and convicted of it, but who knows? Or maybe they missed it. Maybe the vomit, you know kind of dissolved into the ground before they found it. I mean, that's some crackpot detectives out there where they didn't notice it. It was dark out. I don't know, but man, I I'm just going to shut up now because I'm, I could keep going.
1: I'm making a lot of notes.
2: I know. I know. It's crazy. All right. This is a good one. Any final words from you? I mean, I don't have anything else.
1: No, if I keep talking, it's going to keep going.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I've already said too much too. Okay. So (laughs) we appreciate you guys being here. Wait, if you've made it to the end of the video, this is going to be a probably another two hour episode. So if you made it to the end of the video, let us know in the comments. What do you think about this investigation so far? Where do you stand on it? Do you think Mark Abbott killed Michelle? Or do you think there's someone else who, are you still on the fence and truly believe that there could be someone else? We have already talked about Leon. Do you think Leon Lamb is a fuck boy? That that you can weigh in on that as well. That seems to be a priority for Stephanie, Mm -hmm. weigh in on that. And, uh, you know, also the idea that we could be talking about individuals right now and the person who did this, you know, could be someone who's killed others before as a serial killer, someone who just saw her, took advantage of it. And she's on a list of victims for this individual. And that person didn't come forward because they have no connection to her and they didn't want to have a connection to her. There could be someone in that short period of time before Mark rolls up on her car who killed Michelle. And we don't know who that person is and they've never been identified. That is a possibility. So where do you stand on it? Where do you fall? Let us know down below. We're interested to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Appreciate you guys being with us. Have a good night. Stay safe out there. Bye. Bye.